Hello. Hello. How are Welcome. you? Welcome. This is my favorite day. <laughs> is this payback? Yes, it is. Oh. Well, I'll, I'll try to be uh, suitably frustrated and awkward unless I guess it in my first couple of guesses. Okay, good, good. And even if you have an inkling, like um, I, like a Wordle score, I just want to see you, like, I, I need you to go to, like, nine or 12 questions. Okay. Um, yeah. And uh, you today's go to nine the- or 12 on Wordle, um, you don't, you can't go to, they, it, they don't go to nine or 12. Right, nine or 12. So I'm saying, like, nine or 12 in 20 questions is, like, mm. four in mm. Wordle, right? Like, if you, yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Um, so to Don, there's uh, an and special guest, secret guest. There's a lot going on here this morning, just in in general, that has nothing to do with food safety. That I want to, I'm, I'm, the, there's a little bit of dismay. Or our, um, it, uh, this, this is does more it, more for you, Don, than does it does guest. does it involve uh, outhouses or nope. um, uh, portable balconies? No, no, no portable balconies. No, it involves the Olympics. And, oh. and and our our collective friend, your Don and mine, and, and this, um, and not someone who who secret guest may or may not know. Don, I'm not not typically not going to say one way or the other. Say. Yeah, but uh, but our our friend Michelle Danilock, we've been texting back and forth about um, the Olympics. So there's a, a, a curling match between uh, a women's curling match between uh, Canada and China, and we lost. Um, spoiler alert, because by the time people listen to this, uh, probably the Olympics will be over. Um, but but also now um, Sweden is playing Canada in the men's hockey quarterfinals. And it was oh, it's been a sloppy game. It was zero zero up until about four minutes ago. And then Sweden scored. So now it's one nothing. And uh, yeah, so so it's uh, and I'll just I'll quote from Michelle's text to me. I think this is going to be a bad morning. And I'm feeling that way too, but I think it's going to be a good morning because we have a secret guest. And so that makes me feel better. Um, <laughs> well, you know, it's all about you. It is. Well, it is. I mean, this is all, this is my show. It's all about me. So, all right, let's get started. There's uh, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you ongoing updates. Cause I know you're going to want to know about uh, Canada, Sweden uh, as we go along, but it's, it's all, on my iPad off to the side currently it's in a commercial break so there's nothing nothing exciting going on um but this is uh for for our listeners uh this I, is it a is the right it's a it's either a bit or it's a trope i think it's a bit that we're doing right well or it could be a segment it could be a segment it might be a segment yeah it could be a series of um very special guests secret guests that join us uh but i i want to go back and rehash, uh, as, as the, they say in corporate America, let's, let's rehash and get aligned. Um, what we've been, what we've they been do, doing. They do say that episodes. in corporate. Yeah. They say, say that in the, in the, in court, they, they say that up at corporate. Um, <laughs> so we've got, uh, we, we had, uh, chef Matt Collins as a secret mm-hmm. special guest who I didn't know that you knew. Um, we had, um, secret special guest Casey Liss join us. Um, mm-hmm. we had secret special guest, Jess Tang join us. And now in, in, in the fourth episode of our secret special guest arc, we have another special guest, but this one I brought to the table and Don, you don't know who it is. So let us embark on the always entertaining and 
the part that makes me uncomfortable when I'm placed in this situation. Um, uh, tw- 20 plus or minus um, five or, or 10 questions to guess who secret guest, guest is. So Don, okay. you get to ask the questions. Okay, so first, so apologies, apologies to the to the listeners and to uh, and to our secret guest for just how awkward this must be. Um, so uh, first question: Do they use uh, she/her pronouns? And and I'm going to answer for a special guest, um, mm-hmm. mainly for consistency uh, on on some of these. Uh, n- no, they do not use she/her program pronouns. Damn it. All right. Well, I'm out of ideas. Um, <laughs> no, because w- what happened was uh, what, what had happened was um, so the uh, um, when you first announced this to me, um, there was a tweet uh, where someone said, oh, uh, you should have uh, Sarah Tabor on the podcast. Oh. Um, and I'm like, oh, um, then I know who the special guest is because that within a very short amount of time, Ben said, I have a new special guest for us, but, uh, but it's not, but it's not Dr. Sarah Tabor because Dr. Sarah Tabor uses, uh, she, her, she pronouns. her pronouns. So yes. Yep. Damn it. So um, just maybe, okay. tr- maybe just yell out names of other people. Uh, it, no, no, I, that was a, that was a, that, see, that would have either been a spectacular win oh, yeah. or, or a dramatic failure. Uh, yes. and I, I would say that it, now that, uh, put that in the dramatic failure column column. Yeah. So, all right. Uh, is this somebody that is known to me? Yes. Is this somebody I know and have met in real life? Yes. Is this someone whose voice I would recognize? Yes. Is this somebody from the food safety community? Yes. You're getting really good at this. <laughs> so uh, I, this wait, wait. Can I stop okay. you for a second? Are you now sure. going to the uh, to the IAFP membership uh, database? And you're going to only just... in my mind. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Is this someone who works in my, in government? No. Is this someone who works in industry? No. All right. Is, uh, well, I have to ask this. It's going to burn a guess. Is this someone who works in academia? Yes. Okay. All right. So male food safety academia is where we've got it narrowed down to. And somebody I know. Yes. Uh, that was, that was not a guess. That was me, uh, only six guesses left. Oh, come on now. Um, uh, well, this, 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 I don't want to burn a question, but I don't want to go off on a tangent. Um, is this someone who works inside the United States? No. Well, Uh, yeah, I mean, well, it depends on your, they, depends yeah. on your definition of work, but I, okay. I'm going to, is this someone of, so this is somebody who's an academic. Is this someone affiliated with an academic institution inside the United States? No. Okay. Not currently. Not currently. <laughs> hmm. Is this someone who is affiliated with a Canadian university? Yes. Is it Larry Goodrich? 
Larry. I, I am good at this game. You are. Larry, <laughs> there you go. He's, get, he's, he's getting really good. This is, yep, yep. Hey, you Larry. Did it. John, how How's it are going? You? How's it going? Well, nice let me you. just, you know, as let me just show what I'm wearing here. It's oh, nice. Like, it's, it's, well, Repping. maybe it's not nice. Three minutes ago, Don. It's not it's, looking good. It's not looking good. It's a bad, bad morning for those of us to uh, originate from the land of the Maple Leaf. Show so like, do you guys want me to just do the show and you can watch TV? <laughs> well, <I laughs> in, mean, in three minutes, it won't matter. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's gonna be all over. So. Unless we're going to overtime, and then we'll just pause the show while Larry and I go. Oh, ah, you know, the, <laughs> exactly. yeah. Hey, hey, yeah. hey, Larry, is your is your mic coming in through your headset? Because it doesn't. It sounds yeah. muffled. It sounds a little muffled. Yeah, is that cord plugged in? It, it is, but I keep having. Let me try. So, can I unplug and try something else? Yeah, go. You okay. do yeah. what you need to do. This is it, it's in the show. It's in the show. All right, just hold on a sec. Yeah, you did good, Don. That was thanks. You made yeah. it easy. I did well. I I mean, I didn't I I didn't pick someone uh, like obscure that you didn't know, which would have been what that that's the next that's the next one. Is this better? Yeah. Oh, ah, no, it's, it's the same. same. Are it's you checking the Zoom? Uh, yeah, can you look in the Zoom microphone and see what it's using as a microphone? Yeah. Yeah, let me see here. I'm sorry. Love it when we do this. You know, I'm sorry. I can actually edit this part out. <laughs> yeah, I was I was going to oh. ask uh oh, there we go. I was I was going to ask um, north or south of the Mason-Dixon line. And I'm really glad I didn't because you would have said north. And yes. then, and then I would have had to, uh, you know, uh, you know, I would have been misled. So yeah, yeah, because Canada is clearly north of the Mason-Dixon line. So true. Glad, I'm glad I clarified inside the United States. And then also the way that you hesitated um, I, made me think, oh, okay, it's like a Canadian-U.S. connection. Yeah, yeah or yeah, maybe but, it's a maybe it could be Alex Castillo. You know, so it could be I, like a Texas-Mexico connection. I tried to throw you off, but it didn't. It didn't quite work. Um, I uh, just just as a real time follow up about mm -hmm. uh, about hockey uh, it is now two nothing Sweden. They just scored an empty net goal, so looks like oh, no. the uh, the road to Olympic gold is is ending for um, for our, our our country folk. Oh no! I'm going to turn my mic my microphone off. I'm going to turn my my video off. <laughs> Me too. Cause Done. Because it's not the way we do this podcast. No. Larry, how's your mic? Any any uh, change? Uh, can you hear me? Oh, oh, much, much better. better. Much better. You did it. I switched microphones. This is why it, oh. headsets. This is why it's good to have uh, different headsets in the house. I, I don't know why I do that, but you know. Yeah, yeah no, you're 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 crystal clear now. Yeah, and you don't need your video on because we turn ours off for yeah, perfect podcast. Um, um, so all right. So here, here we go. We've got microphones are all set up. Don's guests are our secret guest. Um, Larry, while you were looking for a headset, Sweden scored. A I, know. Goal. I um, know. I'm just I'm all again. Over. I will. I will repeat my my request or my comment. Um, would you guys like to just watch TV and I'll do the no? Because in a minute, I, there's no need to watch. There's no what? Yeah. What, what do you want? Us, what do you want us to watch? Yeah. No. No. Oh. That's fine. Um. Uh. Yeah. No. No. There's there's nothing. Nothing even. Well. I'm, I'm not even, with so much hope yeah that's that's the thing right so so don i know you're not uh you're not not heavily into sports ball or sports puck um any huh. of the any of the sports things that, that we're into um uh, I, but there is something and larry 
you know, le- what Larry did did uh, exist and was affiliated with uh, a couple of U.S. institutions. So he spent time in yeah. the U.S. as a Canadian. Um, and Larry, did you? You were here. You must have been here during some Olympics, right? Like, you, oh yeah, you've experienced this. It's very odd that that it is probably the most like patriotic time that that exists for me um, during the Olympics because we we have a whole we got a whole process of VPNs and 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 you know opening up firewalls and closing firewalls so i we can watch the canadian feed of all things olympics which i can do in my house i can't do that in the university you know machine um but have you have you tried yeah yeah we're, okay. we're all like yeah um some sometimes yeah, it works you have any fun yeah sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't um, but it has to do with the app requirements as well. So it's, it's much easier to do it on a, on, on um, a fire stick. <laughs> uh, right. Yeah. Um, so, um, but there is something very patriotic about being a Canadian in the U S during the Olympics, because it's the only time that we really get to, I don't know, like get into sport from a, from a country situation right like from uh looking at what we're what we're doing and it, and i've experienced it you know for i've been here 13 years so i've done it multiple winter games multiple um summer games it's always great when canada meets the u.s in some sort of team sport whether it's soccer or hockey or curling um and, and oh we, let's talk more about curling oh gosh yes let's talk we'll trigger michelle curling. yeah uh but it's uh, and, and, uh, you know, I actually really, I, I like, and I, you know, since COVID, I haven't really done this, but I, I'll often go to some sort of establishment of a sports bar and watch a Canadian hockey game during the day to be, to be like, am I going to run into the third, you know, one of the three Canadians that might be here? Oh, to, like you're, yeah. You're out cruising for Canadians. Yeah. Cruising saying. for Canadians. Exactly. <laughs> So, so here's, here's the, like, I I guess the hard part about this and Larry, I want to get your, you know, you're, you've existed in both countries and you, you're now back in Canada. Do you, is it, is it a different level of patriotism watching these games than, than when you were in Colorado or in Wyoming? Um, I I don't know if it's a different level of patriotism, but it's, it's, I mean, it was, you know, it was when I was in the U.S. during the Olympics. I mean, it was, you know, it was hard lifting, you know, bearing the Canadian flag alone. Right. You know, I mean, 2010, you know, uh, 2010 Olympics, which was in in Vancouver. But I was in the U.S. when Canada and the U.S. played in the gold medal game, the hockey game. And I, I took some serious abuse being a Canadian, you know. And, and then, and then we went in overtime and I had to show up the next day to work in my Canadian Jersey. (laughs) And I, and I took some more serious abuse. I, I I really, I would question the allegiance of anyone who's worked at, what is it now, Larry, four universities in two different countries. I think, I think you're more like just a free agent. I think you're just, you're just, he's a commodity. You're you're, out for Larry. So so I should, so I should just sign myself out to the highest bidding country. Is that, 
Yeah, well, you know. I don't know. Uh, I'm just saying. I mean, coming from a guy who's only ever been at one university, I just don't understand. Maybe <laughs> Finland is going to come calling for, for Larry. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. Or maybe, maybe uh, I don't think Sweden will. No, yeah, not but today. They don't need today. us. They, they don't, don't need yeah. us, but yeah, but maybe Finland. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, and, and that other that other Canadian that used to be a U.S. academic that was I thought was maybe on on the list of guests uh, would be our mutual friend, uh, Jeff Lejeune, who's who's not oh. only changed countries, but he's changed uh, affiliations. He yeah, works he's, for, uh, you know, an NGO now. Yeah, he's he's yeah, you know, and he's he I think he's he's firmly European right now. Oh, yeah, yeah. He every once in a while suits him though, you know. <laughs> he, <who's, laughs> it does. It does suit him. Actually, I was just on a call with him the other day, and he was, you know, drinking wine in the Alps. <laughs> Damn I it! Mean, you know, I mean, <laughs> some of us should be so lucky. True. True. Yeah. So, to so do, so yeah, all things considered, I'd rather be drinking wine in the Alps today uh, too. <laughs> yeah. Well, then watching Sweden beat Canada to nothing. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. For sure. Uh, I'm uh, Don. We we haven't mentioned uh, the um, you know the most Canadian. We, we you know Larry Larry listens every once in a while, and Larry knows us. But one of the things that keeps coming up on Food Safety Talk, Larry, is just like m- multiple like food safe or not food safety Canadian things. One of them is the tragically hip. So I want to. I, I've had a very interesting last couple of weeks because I'm reading a book about the tragically hip. Um, and it's, I don't know, it's hard to describe like the, seeing the tragically hip at, uh, in concert in the U S a, a few years ago was more, it was like watching a, 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 US, a Canadian Olympic hockey game in a, in a sports bar in the U S like it, it, you're, you're certainly trolling for Canadians, but also this, it's a, it's a different feel of patriotism. Like I wouldn't have, I would never just, I don't know because everybody i guess in canada is watching the olympic game there's there's certainly like a shared uh experience but i'm not going to a a sports bar to feel the same same kind of thing and so anyway just it made me think about like the the this this book that i've been reading which i will link to i can't even remember what it's called um but it's it's on the you know just the history of the tragically hip and how they became the band that they are and all all things canadian um but one of the things that that keeps popping up in the like in this in this book is that the you can't really describe the tragically hip as like the most amazing like musical group they they just had this ability to to like span all of the different I don't know, genres and likes in Canada and, 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 you know, my, my parents listen to them and my kids listen to them and, and they're very much like a a Canadian kind of like thing. It's a, it's a signal, right? Like it's, it's something that, that if, if you hear a tragically hip song and and you're in a room with someone here in the U S and two of you look at each other, you're like, you must be Canadian. So I, I was reading this book going through this, um, you know, the Olympics are on, it's a, it's a weird sort of Canadian time because of that. And then I went to a lacrosse game with my kids, um, a couple of weeks ago, Duke lacrosse. Cause we don't, NC state doesn't have lacrosse, um, like NCAA lacrosse. So my mom, both my kids play. So we went and watched the game and in, 
the world of lacrosse at, at the division one level, if it, you know, there are goal songs. So if someone scores a goal, they get to pick the, the music that's played afterwards. And so the, you know, me and, and my two kids were sitting watching this game and a tragically hip song comes on. And I was like, this is weird. Like, what is, yeah. what is happening? Why are we listening? And no one, no one cares, right? Like every, right. everybody, well, that's no around, Americans care, no Americans care, which is everyone who, who we're with. Right. And so we look it up and the guy who scored the goal is from Oshawa, Ontario. Um, and so, so there's, I, I don't know, I don't, I'm, I'm probably not articulating it very well, but there no. are certain things about living in the U S that are, it's, it's very, it's weird it, when, well, when this, so it's, it, it's all, it's all wrapped up in what I'm experiencing right now. Well, let me, let me, let me share two things that occurred to me as you were telling those stories. And the first one is like this idea of getting swept up in the culture. So I was, I've had the good fortune to visit Brazil a number of times and I was there also, well, I was there when there were riots, which was exciting. Um, but, 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 you know, but, but fine. Cause they really weren't, you know, I, they, they didn't impact me, but, um, but, but I was also there when the world cup was going on and it was really exciting. Like I got caught up in it, right? Like I don't care about soccer and I don't care. <laughs> I love, love my Brazilian friends, but I don't necessarily care about Brazilian soccer, but it was really exciting to be around the Brazilians that were, um, uh, that were, that were getting excited about soccer. And then the, the second story, which was rem- your lacrosse story reminded me of was when I was a kid, we used to go to, um, uh, Cornell hockey games. And I don't know, I don't know. You've probably never been to a Cornell hockey game, Ben, but they play, uh, before the game, they play two national anthems. <laughs> Right, right. That's because a majority of the players, I believe, are uh, Canadian, which is not surprising because, you know, Ithaca is pretty, pretty, pretty far uh, up there uh, close to uh, Canada. So, which, and it kind of, it was. It, but it was, a, it was a week as a kid. It's like, what is that music that they're playing? And then it was explained to me. It's like, Oh, okay. Um, that's weird. But I guess it makes sense because uh, they don't care about the U S national anthem because they're <laughs> yeah. Canadian. So oh, they just happen to be here playing hockey. So, okay, so, so cool. Don, yeah. your first introduction to the Canadian <laughs> anthem was at a Cornell hockey, Cornell hockey game. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. Well, yeah. Well, and real time follow-up uh, we'll include this in show notes to, uh, the uh, Duke lacrosse player that scored, uh, his name is Dyson Williams, and he picked uh, the uh, Tragically Hip song Music at Work as his goal song. Uh, and then the Tragically Hip book that I'm reading um, right now is called The Never-Ending Present, The Story of Gord Downey and the Tragically Hip by Michael Barclay. So we'll link to those in, in show notes. But yeah, it's a, it's a weird, I don't know, it's a weird thing. I, I, don't, I don't think of myself as, particularly patriotic for mm-hmm. Canada, but certainly, and you know, what, one of the things I thought about and Larry and I've known each other for a really long time. And I know you, you've also known each other for a long time, but I remember spending time with Larry when, um, when I was a graduate student, he was a, um, probably assistant or associate professor at, um, at Colorado state. And we went to, I went to a, a meeting in Colorado and he and I hung out and golfed and went and, um, uh, shared a hotel room together, uh, but but it was whoa 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 whoa, whoa. yeah yeah I, it, it was it was a little that's, the, little, the dog, little that's what there, Canadians man. do that's what we do yeah um, but I, I rem- like I just remember thinking like 
I, I don't, you know, I, I don't remember the the details of our conversations, but I know this kind of thing came up, right? Like, what's it like to live yeah, yeah, yeah. outside of the outside of Canada in the U.S. as a Canadian? And it, yeah, I there, I don't know if I'm if I'm back in Canada, I, I don't feel that I'm very patriotic. But when I'm outside of Canada and there's something Canadian going on, I feel more patriotic about it. So it's it's weird. It's weird that I'm. I don't know. Larry and I are sharing that together today with the with this, uh, sh- you know. Uh, emotional loss to, uh, yes. to Sweden. So, um, so, so Don, you need to be supportive of, of, of your friend I, Ben today. Okay. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> I will practice self-care uh, and, and care for others. Yeah. I'm tr- I was trying to think of like, what would be the, the most analogous thing. And if there were, if there were more Northerners at Georgia, I might, I might've felt like, Oh, like here are people that are of my culture. But I didn't really, I didn't really, yeah, there were some folks from, from like, from north of the Mason-Dixon line while I was a student in Georgia, but it wasn't, uh, yeah, there really wasn't anything for us to bond over. So I'm missing out on that experience, but I'm sorry, guys. I'm sorry your, your sports ball teams are not winning. All right. Well, when thank you, you, yeah, thank you. When you went to uh, get like, uh, I don't know, New York style pizza uh, in Athens, did that make you feel, is that, was that it? Was that like there was there was a place there was a place that had really good chicago style pizza um <clears throat> but i had never been to chicago at that point so this was just this was just athens style pizza <laughs> I, right oh that's that's good so um so don just you know larry um larry and i were we're talking we're we're doing a, a i'm a part of a project that that he's leading um and larry larry actually sort of made the suggestion. He said, Hey, I want to come on food safety talk. Um, haven't been on for a while, which and, is always yeah, we've great. Been, like, yeah. yeah. We love yeah, it. We've, we've been wanting to have him on for a while. Yeah. And one of the reasons that, that Larry wanted to, to come on was, and I, you know, Larry, not to, to fully like uh, steal your, your thunder in this, but it's, you know, right now we're, we're in the middle of February, it's black history month. And we wanted to talk about sort of underserved minority populations in food safety and, and stuff like that. And, um, and just really go, you know, go into, into that conversation, um, about what, what, what our landscape looks like in academia and in the world of food safety and, and, you know, and, and have a discussion on that. Um, and then I, you know, I'm always, I'm always up for talking to Larry cause I love, I just love Larry. Um, Larry's a fun, <laughs> I do. I do. Larry, Larry's a fun guy. Um, he's, he's a guy that, uh, we, yeah, I, and I, I'm going to go back in, in, into this like history a little bit. Like, I, you know, like I mentioned, I've known Larry since I was in grad school. He was, um, a, I, I think a PhD student when I started as an undergrad in, in Doug Powell's lab, he was a PhD student with, uh, with Mansell Griffiths and we, you know, we interacted a little bit, but really didn't get to know each other until much, really much, much later um, after he had left um, Guelph and you, Larry went to, you know, I'm, I'm telling Larry's story, but you went to the University of Georgia for, for a little bit as a postdoc, and then you went to Wyoming and then you went to Colorado, right? Like that was your kind of yeah. your path. Yeah. And absolutely. And so, so Larry, Larry is one of these constants, like Don, I've known him longer than I've known you. Um, wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and we've, um, you know, we, 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 we get together quite a bit when we're at meetings and, and, but he's one of the, he's one of those people that I, I think back as being one of my, like, 
introductory mentors into the world of food safety because he was one of the first people that I knew who was not in my little group. Like he was in another group um, at, at Guelph and everyone in my group knew him. And, but, but it was, it was this, I don't know, different kind of, different kind of relationship. And so, yeah. So anytime that Larry, Larry's like, Hey, I want to come on. I'm like, for sure. You're coming on. And it gave me this opportunity to, to have a, a, a fun secret guest, uh, segment of, of food safety talk. And, so, and what we'll, we'll say, I just want to add one thing here, Ben, while I've got the tab open. Um, if people like this episode and they want more Larry, um, they should check out uh, episode 182, Is It Their Last Tuna, when uh, Larry was a guest. Perfect, perfect. And Larry's, um, Larry's a, um, I, I don't know what your official title is. I would say he's like a distinguished professor at uh, the University of Guelph, I think. And actually, let me let me look um, here because I'm sure I have it in. Oh, in, I'm not a distinguished professor yet. He, oh, something is, to attain to. You're distinguished. The, Come on, he's, he's the Leung family <laughs> professor. The Leung family professor in food safety and director of the Canadian Research Institute for Food Safety at the University of Guelph. Um, so yeah, so Larry, what's you know what's going on? Last time we we had you on, we were talking. It was really, I think, right at the start of the the pandemic. Um, um, so what, what's been going on with you? What do you, what are you researching these days? How are, how are things going at Guelph? What, what, what's going on? Well, you know, you're going to change are... universities again. Anything? <laughs> no, <you> know? <laughs> no, I think, I think this is it for me. Um, this is it for me. Uh, we'll, we'll get to that in a, in a, in a moment. Um, things are good. You know, I mean, uh, I think, um, in Canada, we're we're more conservative than the U.S. has been with COVID, so that means we're still, you know, somewhat locked down coming out of it, uh, you know. And but that's had ramifications for for trying to get research done because um, we we're limited to by the number of personnel we can have in each lab because of of social distancing. Um, so so that's been a bit of a struggle, uh, but things are, are really good. My research these days is. Um, the majority of it is, is really on COVID um, and, and, and wastewater analysis, uh, which actually, <clears throat> interestingly enough, came out of food safety um, because I'd started to, to do some wastewater-based um, uh, surveillance. And actually, the, the project that Ben mentioned that, that we're working on together is based on um, wastewater-based surveillance for foodborne pathogens. As a way, and then combining that with with social media analysis as a way to to detect outbreaks, foodborne outbreaks that are um, that are occurring more quickly than than the current approach, which relies on on people to initiate that process by going to a hospital or or some other medical um, professional. So, um, so like like foodborne pathogens, which we know are shed in in feces and therefore find their way into wastewater. The, the virus, the SARS-CoV-2 virus is also shed. Um, and so that's allowed us to, uh, to conduct um, surveillance for the, for the uh, pathogen, which has been really useful lately because um, due to the Omicron variant, um, since everybody's infected, the, the clinical testing of infected people um, is non-existent. We just can't keep up. So the only way to really have a reliable indicator of what's going on is, is through the wastewater. So we've been pretty busy with that. That's yeah. And, uh, cool. Oops. I just, uh, I, I just texted something to the wrong group. <laughs> so Larry, I, you know, I, I, one of the, one of the, uh, 
little behind the scenes tricks that I like to do when we've got someone on food safety talk is like, all right, where, where's Larry been quoted and what, you know, what, what's our guest been talking about? So Don, can I just tell you that Larry is the only one of the three of us that has his own Wikipedia page? Damn are it. You, are you aware of this? Don, you don't have one, do you? I don't, no, I, I don't. Do I, do I have a Wikipedia page? Larry, you are like notable. There is, you have a Wikipedia page. How did, how did this happen? Well, I have no, this is news to me. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm bre breaking news here. Um, Lawrence Goodrich is the, the Luong, Luong, uh, Leung, Leung family professor of food safety at the University of Guelph and director, just like I said before, he uses wastewater testing to spread, uh, to study the spread of COVID-19 and other diseases, studied salmonella. You, you're, you have like an actual, there's an interview with you from food safety news. Like someone is, who's someone's someone's tracking this yeah i just pulled this up and so my first thought was this has really helped me with my sadness that i feel this morning over the olympics that was my first thought but my second thought is i'm gonna have to go in and edit this page because they've misspelled my name several places <laughs> well here's the thing about wikipedia larry you are not allowed to edit your own page oh, you'll, have to find, you'll have to find a server so i'll have to find somebody else to do see i didn't even know that well, and here, okay, now we're on a whole, we're on a whole like internet thing. So the person who's created this is a Wikipedian in residence. Um, it, so again, the internet's a great place to, to hang out. Um, Mary Mark Okerbloom is, uh, for, is a Science History Institute editor, celebration of women writers. Uh, and and uh, so, Mary Mark is is your that that's who created this. This is kind of that's, that's really cool. That is really cool. Also, I why does Larry have a Wikipedia page? Don and we don't. Well, like well, not not that. Yeah, you know, I, I uh, guys, I'm gonna quote. You know, since we just had the Super Bowl, I, I'm gonna quote <laughs> Dr. Dre, and I'm just gonna say, guess who's back? <laughs> guess who's back? <laughs> that's that's all I gotta say about that. Larry, thanks for allowing Don and I to join your podcast today. What I'm, that's where I'm at here. This is awesome. Um, well, um, anyway, this is this is pretty this is pretty fun. So we'll say Larry. Larry has a ways to go before his web page is his Wikipedia page is as extensive as Dr. Dre's, but he's on the right he's on the right trajectory. But, but you know, you you have to start somewhere. Somewhere, yeah. yeah. You know, got, the humble beginnings. There's, I mean, Larry, they, they, um, Mary Mark knows that you were born in Hamilton, that you, you went to the University of Guelph, um, your other institutions that are in Canada. This is like, I get, all right, let's look. It's, it's actually, it's actually, it's a little, it's a little unnerving. Yeah. Actually, sure. To, uh, you know, to, to know that, you know, that information, you know, is out there. Mm. Well, your CV's out there, right? Yeah. I mean, that, that's, so, that's, but, but I, just I mean, want to I'm just out. saying, Ben, if somebody if somebody wanted to, to equalize the playing field and wanted to construct, let's say, a Wikipedia page for you or I, I'm just saying that the the tools are out there. Right. Well, but now we're not, <laughs> not, you're not jealous. Now, yeah, exactly. Now it's now we've now now it's now we look desperate. Right. And like now we're asking for it. Oh, yeah. It's my best look. Yeah. Yeah. So, um. Don, when I look up uh, Don Schaffner Wikipedia, um, Dr. William Schaffner comes up. 
Yeah, no relation. Thanks. No relation. <laughs> I, you know, in fact, I'm glad you cleared that up, John, because I, I actually want to ask you that. Oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah, no, my, my father's name is William Schaffner, but he's not that William Schaffner. Okay. <laughs> it, and he's not that William Shatner. That's not either. Yeah, exactly. Well, if, if he was, then then we would be three Canadians talking. Exactly. And, and, exactly. and you would understand nice. um, why Ben and I are so shattered this morning. Yes. Yeah. And, I, and I would also be Jewish, which would be interesting. True. Yeah. <laughs> this would be, it would be, it would be uh, we would all be learning something about ourselves. <laughs> uh, so, um, so Larry, um, you mentioned just, you know, about kind of the differences between Canada and the U.S. Uh, as it relates to, to COVID management. Are you, tell us a little bit about what it's like right now for you teaching and doing research and outreach and, and such. Um, or do you have students that are back on campus? Is everything, are, I know for the first part of the year, the, like everything was remote, but what's happening right now for you at, at the University of Guelph? And how is so, that? Yeah. What's happening with you specifically? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the campus is open. Um, there's a lot of um, angst among faculty and, and students um, who don't think that it should be open, that the, that the classes should be online, not face to face. Um, for me, um, nothing's really changed. I mean, we've had students all the way through. Uh, you know, my, the courses I teach are, are distance ed. So, so essentially, you know, online all the time this is even pre-covid so hasn't really changed from that aspect in terms of the research we've had students all the way through but as i said it's been hard because um <clears throat> we've been limited um by the number of students and other staff we can have um but the granting agencies um you know are in my opinion they haven't really kept up with the fact that COVID is delaying things huh. so early on early on they understood but you know in terms of like like for me I think you know grant 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 end dates should be suspended indefinitely until we we get out of this because um you know in some projects we're so far behind because the university was shut down for for essentially for a year and then when we got back um you know trying to play catch up there's new projects and 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 so forth so um you know, but 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 at the end of the day, you know, we're we're making progress and, and things are, are fine. I mean, all things considered, you know, people are, are safe. Um, so so, you, you know, I think we have to look at the pauses as well. Are, are you having trouble getting supplies? Because that's been one issue with with my lab as well as we were open <clears throat> with again with physical distancing. But it's a challenge sometimes just to get the supplies you need because of supply chain disruption. Yeah, absolutely. So that doesn't seem to be a, a problem now, um, but certainly early, like a year ago. I mean, I think we ordered um, some pipette tips and they were back ordered for a year. And I think we just got them, you know, yeah, exactly. um, and, 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 and kits, law kits um, were back ordered. And that was for the wastewater surveillance. So I'm part of this provincial initiative um, where we are, we're part of this, this, initiative with 13 other universities where we we do surveillance throughout the province and we have to upload the data three times per week and so forth so that became problematic because <clears throat> we didn't have the supplies you know it's one thing to say if you're doing a research project okay well we'll wait for a couple of weeks or so forth till the supplies come in but you know when you're required Here. to actually upload yeah. the data yeah. yeah uh you know so 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 yeah, but I, I think lately it, it hasn't seemed to be um, 
as much of a problem. Hmm. Well, and I think here, I mean, just talking with other colleagues and Don, I think your experience is we, I think we're experiencing supply chain disruptions more now than we did a year ago. Really? That's interesting. Yeah. yeah I don't know. Don, would you, is that, is that kind of your, your view? Um, it's hit or miss. Like some, it's just some things uh, are disrupted and some things are not, and it seems to change on a daily basis. And then part of it is too, that the university is always rejiggering its, um, <clears throat> who we're going to have approved vendors. So I honestly, I just, I just try to stay out of it. And I, I only get involved if my students tell me that something needs to needs my attention. So I'm probably not the best person to, to ask. I do, I do know that we did have several things uh, about six months ago that were delayed, but I'm I, th- these days I think we're doing okay, but, uh, but yeah, it's, 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 it's hard to tell. Yeah. It's um, we're, you know, the, the type of research that we do, um, doesn't, you know, doesn't involve, well, I shouldn't say it doesn't involve my, my, I I'm the pipette tip stuff's not under my purview. Right. So I, we, we do a lot of work with, um, Leanne Jacobs's group and, um, we, we share, a um, a, a really great staff member who I know, I know Don knows, but, uh, Beck Golter, who, um, I'm not sure if you know her, Larry, but she she kind of runs all the microbiology for for the stuff that we do in our observation kitchens. But we're gearing up for um, a, a couple of different observation studies that involve food products, and that's where where we've been a little bit hit or miss on supply chain stuff in grocery stores. Like we were every once in a while experiencing like no milk, no. Um, for one of our projects, we're, we're going to be looking at, um, uh, breakfast sausages specifically and just going some grocery stores, it's all about like suppliers, right? So some grocery stores have them and then it, we need to go and figure out how to manage these breakfast sausages over a couple of week period. So, so if we go and we don't have it and we've got observation scheduled, it becomes a real problem if we don't have the actual product that we need people to, to look at. Uh, or, or handle. So stuff like that's been really um, uh, t- challenging, right? Like, cause you can't plan for it. And, and we've already got the rest of the project all set up. So if we can't get the can, thing that we want people to handle there, it's really, you know, it's a problem. Can you, can you buy it and freeze it? Or is that going to impact the, if you can it, say? It's going to impact kind of what, what we're, what we're doing. Okay. Um, so certainly we can buy and, and freeze it. Um, and then the, it's a, it's kind of a, it's a little bit of a different type of product at the end of the freezing, I guess. Ah, okay. Got yeah. it. Got it. Yep. The freeze thaw. Hey, so Larry, I got a question for you that's Canadian based. Um, what's, have you been following this like corn salmonella outbreak thing that's going on? What's like, what do you know about this? So I've, I've been following it you know only topically so one of the things you know that's happened to me is that um during covid is that and and with this wastewater uh analysis is it's just taken over yeah um and 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 so you know i was just thinking about this the other day how i actually don't i I haven't really been following food safety lately um because i've been so immersed in this so so i was talking with with michelle Danilek the other day you know we were talking about some outbreaks that happened last summer for example um in the u.s a salmonella outbreak linked to um hydroponic um i think it was hydroponically grown lettuce 
um, which I wasn't aware of, you know, and, and, and so I feel like I'm in this vacuum. So I, I'm, I'm aware that the, the outbreak, um, it wasn't originally um, linked to corn. It was another food of which that escapes me at the moment. Um, avocados. Uh, oh, avocados. Okay. Um, and then, and then, and then, you know, epi, epidemiological evidence seemed to, uh, to, to challenge that. So, um, so it was it was corn. It's it's kind of interesting because um, the uh, Public Health Agency of Canada I do a lot of work with them, um, including their uh, genomic epidemiology section and, and people who work in um, PulseNet Canada, who of course work closely with PulseNet USA. But even they have shifted uh, completely to like the whole Public Health Agency of Canada has shifted completely right now to COVID. So. Yeah. We um like that's that's actually mandated. They they actually cannot do any other work. Oh um, my gosh! So <clears throat> so so it's been very interesting, and I I, I feel like you know uh, recently I was like, man, I you know I really need to maybe take a couple of days and get back to the basics here, the food micro basics, because I, I feel like I, I have no idea what's going on. Yeah, this one's really like we, Don and I have not talked about this. It's kind of um, came up over the last few, few episodes, but it's a really interesting, like outbreak. Like Don said, it was initially linked to avocados and then Epi linked to frozen corn, frozen corn and, and salmonella is not, yeah. it, it's one of those surprising food combinations, right? Like, yeah. it, um, and, and, you know, Don, Don and I both, um, participate on a scientific advisory council for the American frozen food Institute at folks, good, the good folks at AFI, um, who, who we really like to, um, to interact with. And this is like a, it's a bit of a head scratcher for me, right? Like, um, where, what are the factors that are leading to these illnesses is the part that I, I, I still can't, you know, is it, are, are we talking about corn that's being, um, put into other dishes that then should be cooked, but is not being fully cooked. Are we looking at slacking of this, um, this corn? And it goes all the way back to, to December for, for this. Um, and there's, it's a lot of cases, right? Like there's 110 illnesses, maybe more now, like this was go, going back a couple of weeks. So there, it's a, it's a really weird one. I don't know. Um, well, it, yeah. you know, it is. <clears throat> and it, <clears throat> to me, it just follows this trend of, <clears throat> foods that we typically would not associate with foodborne outbreaks, mm. um, all of which have caused salmonella outbreaks. So I think going back, you know, a couple of years, we have um, two whole onion outbreaks. Um, and then we have, the, there was the outbreak, I, I believe, of salmonella, all of these are salmonellosis um, linked to peaches. Mm -hmm. And now <clears throat> frozen corn. Um, so I, I, and, and all of it's salmonellosis, all of it's salmonella. So, you know, it's, it's kind of an interesting, interesting question. Like, like you, I, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting frozen corn. You think, well, they'd have to cook it. Mm, not necessarily. Um, right. Right. And I think that's the <clears throat> thing, right? Like that's, yeah, we don't. Well, we, so, so you mean like maybe in a salad or something? Yeah. 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 Like, there, with, like peas is the same thing. Yeah. And, and there are, um, so, but, but it what's what's really, and, and again, I, you know, we, we, one of the things that we're really good at doing on food safety talk is speculating a lot, right? Like I would expect that 
um, from some of the data that, that we've seen and that has been shared at IAFP, the blanching process around around corn would would re- if if there was salmonella associated with the fresh corn before it was blanched, that 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 blanching process would would really really reduce the risk, right? So now we're looking at post blanching contamination and then um, making its way into into homes or into restaurants where it, it's added as an ingredient into salads or into salsa. Um, that, that's another one that, that I've seen. Um, so, so it's just like slacked out as part of the, the cook that not the preparation process. And, and man, it's like, it's a really, I don't know. It's, it's, it, 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 it uh, certainly most of the frozen corn that's consumed is cooked, but, it appears that there's enough of it that is not right. Mm, right. Um, yeah. Yep. And, well, and, and, and that, oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, no, and I was going to say, and is there a, is there a cross contamination potential here? And I think the work that Don's done has done would suggest that it's probably not cross contamination because frozen products just don't have a lot of matrix to cross contaminate unless they're thawed and, you know, and, and whatever. Right. But, but I, you know, I wouldn't expect that if I put my hand into a bag of frozen corn that had salmonella on it, that all of a sudden there would be a lot of transfer to my hands. Um, and it's not like, you know, it's not like there's a knife that's being used with this. I don't know. This, this one is like a really, it's a really interesting one for me. Just thinking also, about how does it happen? Well, and also, you know, how did the initial contamination event happen? Right, right, right. right. So, yeah, and, and I suspect that it's that it was maybe there was some contamination that was brought into this fo- frozen food processing facility. But then I've got to ask the question, you know, what's their cleaning and sanitation like? How, do they have a salmonella that has now set up residence in this facility? Right. I just yeah, there's and there's you know, I there's not a lot of information, right? Like we're looking at a couple of articles from Food Safety News. We're looking at um uh, something from the Star newspaper. Um, but the, I don't see. I, I, is there is there a particularly is there a good uh, CFIA website uh, that that has information on this? No, they're all doing I mean, COVID. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just. You know, I'm, I guess, and part of it is I'm just used to looking at the CDC stuff, which you know we have critiqued. But, but generally, uh, I it, it's a you know I can I can go on the CDC webpage, I can find out what's going on, I can look at the Epi curve. I'm not seeing that. I'm not really looking for that either. But is there equivalent? Is there equivalent CFIA stuff? I don't think so, right? I don't or if there is, you know, pointing yeah. to it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Typically, um, I find the CDC is 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 very good for that. Um, we typically don't have that sometimes we, we, we will, um, depending on the outbreak. Um, but it doesn't seem to be as standardized as what you'd find on the CDC website. Yeah. Well, and, and I, you know, Don and I have followed a lot of CDC outbreaks and, and sort of critiqued that and FDA investigations. And it's, I wouldn't say it's, um, it's hit or miss, like some are better than, than others, but it, at least if it was something this big, there would be that, you know, there would be something, maybe an MMWR, something from CDC, and then some sort of investigation update from, uh, from FDA on it. And, and yeah, it's like, I mean, it's been a very quiet discussion and following this, just, um, the, you know, stuff that I, I only heard of it, heard about it from, 
the initial um, uh, food safety news um, message. And I follow yeah. like the, you know, CFIA and public health agency, Canada and health Canada um, on, on all the socials, as they say, but and this yeah. is a big, this is a big outbreak. And now big. we're uh, as of January 29th, 110 people, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. That's massive. Um, yeah. Really big. Yeah. yeah. So, so this brings up a question um, that I have, you know, with respect to, I've, I've been thinking a lot about how COVID has impacted food safety. Um, and re- really what I was thinking was, you know, when there were the outbreaks in, in food processing plants, um, you know, could food safety have been impacted because um, if assuming the plant wasn't, wasn't shuttered, um, you know, you have less employees working and, and, and could that lead to a breakdown in food safety practices, et cetera. But a, a, a potential other question to ask is, is food safety being impacted with respect to to investigations of foodborne outbreaks? Uh, because as I've said here in Canada, you know, the Public Health Agency of Canada, which is the one that national agency that investigates national outbreaks, is so heavily tasked right now with, with working on COVID that um, per- perhaps that's one reason why we're not seeing more in-depth information about this. So, yeah. so what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, and Ben and I have talked to reporters here in the U.S. who've done stories on this, looking at like why why are recall why are recalls down, right? Like, because we saw, where people were asking the question, well, is there is there a trend for recalls being down? Um, meet, which which could conversely be as a result of the pandemic, um, because maybe people are not catching things, right? And so maybe there's fewer um, recalls for um, mislabeling a product just because everybody is is distracted and not focusing on that. And then and then you have to ask the question: Well, is you know, are are is if we're having fewer, it's like the again the the Art Liang's um, <laughs> wonderful slide that I love to talk about, which says that if you want to eliminate foodborne, he didn't say this, but this is my interpretation, which showed a linear relationship between the number of epidemiologists and the number of foodborne disease outbreaks identified in a state. And so the solution to not having foodborne disease outbreaks in your state is to eliminate all the epidemiologists, right? And so, but the same thing applies. If you have fewer epidemiologists who are focusing on food safety, they're going to be identifying fewer outbreaks because they're all worried, worried about COVID. And so the, you know, we might, the the food supply might be less safe, but we would think it's quote unquote more safe because we don't have the, uh, the people paying attention to it. So, and the, and of course, supply chains are all disrupted. And so the short answer is we just don't really know. Right. I mean, one, one metric, which, you know, people have talked about as being a pretty useful metric for, for COVID is let's look at excess mortality, right? And so let's forget about whether somebody is diagnosed with COVID or not. Let's just look at historical mortality and then let's look at excess mortality. And we can say, well, that's probably due to COVID, either dying from COVID or maybe, you know, more people are dying of foodborne disease because we're, and we're just not catching it because of COVID. So it, the, it, it's, as we love to say on this podcast, it's complicated and it depends. Yeah. And, and the, one, one of the things I'm always, um, caution about are these like snapshots, right? Like there, there might be something there on a, on a trend and COVID through so many, like Larry, you mentioned, there's just so many different variables that, that happen. Is it less, uh, focus within a plant? Is it labor issues where, um, food safety gets away from someone? Is it just a different focus of public health? 
Um, is it just our system gets gets overwhelmed? I I had you know I just had a um, like a text earlier today from someone who I know who's uh, whose kid tested positive for for COVID, and you know I, I shared this. I think on the podcast or we, yeah, maybe, maybe not like my, we, my family all got COVID back in, um, about a month ago. And it was at the height of like a thousand new cases a day in, in our County. And there was no contact tracing, but now as things have settled down a little bit, there's more contact tracing of uh, like, I shouldn't say more. It just didn't overwhelm. The system is not as overwhelmed. Right. So people who get tested, who test positive today are more likely to get a follow-up from our local health department than, than we were a month ago, just because of sheer numbers. And that plays into this, right? Like there's just so many things to, to focus on here. And so, so I get, I get a little weirded out on recalls on just the, the idea that there are less or more or, or whatever, because, and why, because there's so many things that changed and maybe Maybe our counting got better. Maybe our counting got worse. Maybe the the way the types of um, packaging and supply chain changed things that led to different recalls. Whatever. Like, there's so much that that's wrapped up in this. And we'll we'll link to a um, an article from NPR um, late last year where Don and I both both talked about this with uh, Joe Joe Hernandez because it's it, I. I don't know. It's, I think there's a, I think there's a story here, but I think to, to really look at it, you've got to think about it in a much broader sense of analysis, not just let's look at recalls today over last year, over 2017. And what's the difference because the system's dynamic, right? Right. And it's not, it's not a well-designed experiment, right? Right. You always tell your graduate students, well, you, you vary one variable at a time. You don't vary two variables uh, because then you don't know what caused the change. And then, and this is a system where we're just varying all the variables constantly. (laughs) Yeah. And, and reacting. So, yeah. Um, one, one thing, um, you know, just since we're talking about sort of the differences between Canada and the U S I want to, um, and this is, I guess, topical. Um, one, one thing that I've been working on with a bunch of folks here in, in the U S is around recall modernization and thinking about how recalls are communicated, how they're managed all throughout the, the fragmented system that we have. And this is one where I think Canada's got a, a benefit, right? So, so one, you know, and, and it, Larry's a perfect guest because he's existed in both of the systems. Here, there, there's a lot of like a company might decide to recall or be asked to recall or nudge towards a recall um, based on initial conversations with a supplier, with a local health department, with a state health department. And then ultimately, depending on the product and where they make it, it might involve, and if there are illnesses, it might involve CDC on communicating, it might involve FDA, it might involve FSIS, it might involve all three of those groups. And and the ways that each of those federal agencies approach recall management, communication, investigation is similar, but different, where in Canada, Although you've got Health Canada, the Public Health Agency, and CFIA, all with, again, similar but overlapping mandates in some cases, CFIA really drives that recall world. And and I, it's one of these, like, 
there are good and bad of, of both of those, those situations. But I, I do look at the fragmented recall management and communication system here in the US as part of something that needs to be addressed in, in going forward. And, and ultimately, and this is something that Don and I have talked about um, quite a bit. And I know, Larry, you've got, you know, you're, you're adjacent to this. So I'm sure you've got some thoughts. None of the None of the agencies, at least here in the U.S., and I haven't really seen anything explicitly from from CFIA, but, you know, they communicate stuff to consumers, but it's not really within their mandate to figure out whether the communication is effective, right? Like, ultimately, what we want people to do is go to their pantry. You know, let's look at this this corn as an example. We want people to go to their freezer and be like, do you have any of this corn or do you have any of the frozen foods that might contain this corn? And how that gets evaluated or uh, how well we do at that, what the effectiveness is of, of that, I don't think anybody really focuses on. And I think if we're going to, I don't know, fix or modernize recalls, we've got to look at it, all of it. No one owns it, right? Like no well, one owns it from start to finish. And and does does Canada have the equivalent of the reportable foods registry, right? Like I, I with a lot of this, this, the, the sort of the knock on effects from this corn recall, it's, it's, it's industrial producers, you know, business to business sale of this frozen corn. And then, and then, and then that product is going right. to consumers. Right. And so I guess what I'm wondering is I'm, I'm assuming Canada does not have reportable food registry because that's a relatively new innovation in the U S and as we know, Canada just copies everything that we do. <laughs> hey, Imitation is the greatest form of flattery. That's right. That's right. But, but do you, like, do you guys know? I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, yeah. I, yeah. I don't. I don't know either. Um, I don't know either. But but I I, I assume that CFIA would coordinate all of that. You know. Um, but the point about you know consumers and what they have in their pantries is well taken. Um, I think a few years ago, Sylvain Charlebois did a, a survey that showed that most Canadian consumers don't pay attention to recalls. Yeah. Um, well, and he, I he think is the, he is the food professor. So, he, you know, <laughs> if he said it, I believe it. <laughs> well, I mean, I know in, if, I, anecdotally in our family, I mean, you know, um, my wife who does most of the grocery shopping does not pay attention. You know, it's, it's me. I'm the one that, you know, say, Hey, there's a recall it's checked to make sure we have this so so i you know i i would i would i would without having any any real evidence i would i would support that that conclusion um i think it's even worse during covid yeah uh you know i think people are just not paying attention so yeah so these all these points are, are very well taken well and it's it's one of these things where you know, there's no, there's no real like quick solution to it, right? Like there's no, it, the, the system that we, the, the problems that we encounter uh, were, were not things that were really envisioned when we built the systems that we both exist in or that we all exist in, right? Like, like certainly it would be great to have one unified food safety, um, all, all things to everybody, food safety agency, but the the 
cost and and challenge of actually doing that midstream like where we are right now is probably not worth it we kind of have to deal with with what we have here in the us right like and and think about how those agencies can continue to work together to get more on the same page as it relates to how they handle things um the you know the canadian system as much as it's it, it's got a lot of control within cfi there are other players that not everybody's going to get get on board. I, I think what's really interesting to me is the, um, the difference between state, um, I guess like powers around food safety and, and focus and provincial powers around food safety and focus are there, there's a different dynamic there, um, as well. And, you know, like, like we, we've talked about on this podcast in the past, like you've got some really great states that focus a lot on um, uh, public health, environmental health, uh, inspections. They have a really great relationship with federal partners. And you have other states that don't have the resources to do that. And and I, I get I get the sense, and I, again, I'm more on, from the outside now than I ever was um, in Canada, that there's a much more um, centralized focus from the federal government around food safety that, 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 that sort of provinces fall in line more with, I guess. Um, but, but again, that's again, from the outside more now, cause I'm not in those, in those circles or in those conversations. Like I, like I have the ability to be, be here. Um, so yeah, it's, um, I don't know. There's a lot, right? Like there's the challenge of the pandemic, the resources, how everything's shifted, all the variability there. I think there's still, um, it, it's, it's added a monkey wrench into what we do in food safety. And then I'm going to like share something from, from our friend, Michelle, who we've talked about. One of the other things that we have in this like uphill battle around food safety right now is we're in the midst of a pandemic with, you know, like what, I don't know, tens and, you know, hundreds of millions of illnesses, um, and you know, in the U S a million deaths. And when we talk about food safety and the resources that need to go into that, and, and it's, it's way less, uh, from a public health impact, right? Like, and it's still important. And it's something that we have, we gotta, we struggle with because how do you, how do you make the, the case to continue to focus on food safety at the level that we, that we have been doing before the pandemic, when, when you're talking about, you know, thousands of illnesses or thousands of deaths, sorry, 48 million cases of, of foodborne illness in, in the U S and 10 to 13 million cases in, in Canada annually, but it's, it's different, right? Like it's, I, I feel like it does put things into perspective and it becomes an uphill battle in, in trying to fight this, the, you know, this microbiological um, battle that we have. So sorry to oh, rant. But, yeah, no, no. But I, but I think if you look at all three of us have pivoted some of us more than others, to do pandemic related yep. stuff, right? Yep. Ben, like you're you're leading food Net. Larry is looking for uh, SARS-CoV-2 in wastewater. Larry, you, you'll you be um, maybe happy to hear that I have become a virologist because uh, no, well, we, we, were, we were doing virology before with- Absolutely, I was gonna too, say. But we're now we're working with um, um, bacteriophage five six as a SARS CoV two surrogate, and so but it's and it's great. It's 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 a lot of fun, um, and I still I still think about when I visited you um, in Fort Collins and uh, your license plate, uh, which I took a picture of. That uh, and and you know, so so I'm gonna absolutely. So I'm going to. Um, I still think fondly of that as well. Um, 
And I, I, so I haven't, you know, when I moved to Quebec, um, they didn't allow personalized license plates. So I couldn't, get, I couldn't get a new one. And then Ontario does. I haven't gotten around to it. But a New Year's resolution is to, to you know, get the Ontario oh. Phages plates again. And once that happens, um, I will send a personal picture to you. <laughs> but, now, but now let this be a challenge to all of our Ontario listeners. Um, if you can beat Larry... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, don't let us know because uh, then we'll be angry uh, yes so. exactly, exactly. <laughs> that's right that assumes yes that assumes that a phages license plate does not exist already already true you could have already been scooped yes, yeah yes, you, yes, you yes. could be like phage 36 <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> 99 yeah exactly um, yeah so yeah no i mean i i think you're i think you're right don like i i i I certainly agree. I think we're all, we've all reevaluated what we're looking at, but it doesn't, you know, salmonella is still important, right? You know what I mean? Like, like we're, we, we still have, we still have work to do in, in those areas. Um, but yeah. I, 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 another indirect, um, you know, potential indirect consequence, you know, I, I think, you know, there's been a lot of attention focused on the acute circumstances of, of, of COVID-19. So the deaths and, and the, the acute symptoms and so forth. But I've really been thinking a lot about the long-term effects. You know, I think we now know that this is a, it's not so much a respiratory infection as a systemic one and infects a number, it uh, uh, can cause damage to a number of organs across the body. And I, I just, you know, the an open question I have is, are we going to see you know, for those who, who were infected, particularly with uh, serious infections um, that have recovered, you know, is this somewhere that we're going to see? Are we going to see, you know, increased susceptibility to other other infections, including foodborne ones? Um, you know, so yeah, it's just something, there's no real answer to that. I don't think anybody knows, but, you know, I just wonder moving forward, um, there's just so many different open-ended questions i i think that's a really good point because we um although we talk a lot about sort of the long-term effects of foodborne illness it's not it's not sexy right like like it's always it's acute that we're that most of our focus is on like i i would say and i've i've been hot on toxoplasma uh toxoplasma gondi for a long time as something that i'm really like i i see as this um, under focused on, I was going to say underrated. I think it's probably correctly rated, uh, but it's not something that, that we talk about sort of this long-term impacts of, of the, the parasite as it relates to food safety and what we do, like, you know, you, you don't see, you don't see that parasite listed on, on you know, on, um, healthy people 2030 in from from CDC as as a top pathogen that we need to worry about because it's it's long term it it takes a toll um on people over time i think the reactive arthritis aspect of salmonella is something that we talk about but it's hard to get our hands around how do, how does you know the resources go go towards those things that that are quick and 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 identifiable and, and are flashy. And I think Larry, you bring up this, this point of man, how will we address this, this uh, intersection between 
long COVID and, and other susceptibility to foodborne illness in a way that's meaningful because, you know, historically we just haven't done a good job on, on the long-term effects of foodborne illness. Yeah, absolutely. So somewhat related, um, I'm sharing something in the chat um, that I just came across. I don't know if you guys have seen um, this, this study. Uh, apparently it just came out, um, it was just published sometime this year um, about uh, oh. the SARS-CoV-2 virus remaining infectious on uh, refrigerated deli foods oh, yes. for up to 21 days. So I just thought, I, I know, you know, um, in previous episodes, studies have been discussed where, you know, and the, and the, the general consensus was, you know, the methods used to, to assess the presence of the virus, typically RT-PCR would not be able to determine viability. So, well, this so seems- let me, let me ask you a couple of questions though. So it's my first reaction, whenever I see an article from an M. DPI journal is I my first reaction is well that's an MDPI journal. <laughs> do you do you discount MDPI journals at all when you assess the quality of work? Well, uh, you know, so to be honest, I also um, thought that uh, or mm-hmm. think that. Mm-hmm. Um, so then, so then the next thing I do is I typically then turn to see. Um, <clears throat> who the authors are <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly exactly and well, and, and, and so yeah. i don't know these authors uh but i do know the university right um right. that they've come from so that that's where i thought well you know maybe yeah let's have a and, discussion and yeah and and so we i will and i think i can reveal this ben so we yeah. were at a meeting so because of Ben's amazing leadership and setting up Food Kobe Net, we've also reached out to a number of other groups that were funded as part of this um, NIFA funding for you know f- uh, pandemic-related food safety or, or pandemic-related food um, uh, grants. And one of those grants was indeed at Virginia Tech and is being led by the um, penultimate author, um, uh, Reza Alvisapur. And so we are familiar with with Reza's work and uh, they presented some of that work at uh, our a meeting that we had recently um, and so we are we are familiar with with this this uh, they basically have done a whole bunch of experiments where they put virus in a whole bunch of situations and then they look for viability so um, I, I, I guess it's I still I mean so it's interesting right so it remains infectious in refrigerated foods for 20 up to 21 days again I would want to know, and I, I'm only looking at the headline or the, at the title. What I, what, again, I, oh, I, I really, let, permit me to rant for just a minute. Um, I don't want to know how many days something survives, right? I want to know the inactivation kinetics because if you load something up with a really high level and you have a really low detection limit, that's going to influence the number of days, right? What doesn't change is the kinetics of inactivation. So what I want to know is the log reduction in infectivity per day or per week uh, or whatever, but it's it's not, this is not especially surprising to me, but, but of course it leaves open the question and you know, the three of us have talked and, and 
co contemplated writing editorials back in the day on, on this topic. Like, okay, so let's say there's somebody sneezes, somebody who's infected with SARS-CoV-2 uh, sneezes on my uh, deli food and I eat it. Uh, what's the chance that I'm actually going to get sick from that? And I think that is that's still an open question. Um, are we are we suggesting that people should stop eating refrigerated deli foods as a result of this work? I don't think so, right? Um, so it's interesting, but um, yeah, that's kind of my my um, quick reaction to it. Yeah, yeah I, and I, and I completely agree with 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 your assessment. I, I just brought it up. I think it's important. This has been an ongoing. I think through the pandemic, you know, this this question of is it foodborne, ongoing. I mean, I, I think I'm on record saying I don't see evidence of that. Um, I will, I will, I will put an asterisk to that, which I'll get to in a second. Uh, but I, I still remain confident that food is not uh, a likely source of infection. But that being said, it has continued. We, we certainly know, you know. Um, several reports out of China, you know, with supposedly they found the virus on various imported foods and so forth. So I think it's important for listeners, you know, to, to or I guess I overphrase that to say, I think it's important when, when studies come out that may challenge what I believe to be the, the um, majority opinion that food is not a, a source. Um, I think it's important to, to discuss this um, for people who may not know. The one caveat I was going to say back to my point about I I I'm I see no evidence um, of foodborne um, you know spread of of the virus is that um, we never you know to to my knowledge people infected. People are never asked that have never been have never been asked. So if, if somebody has COVID and they go to the hospital, I don't think anybody asks them, "Well, what food did you eat?" Like we don't normally we don't do the tip we would not do the typical foodborne investigation that we would do if suspected for foodborne illness. So I don't know how anybody would know um, if it was foodborne because that those types of questions haven't been asked. But having said that, given what we know about the virus. Given what we know about how it spreads, um, you know, I'm, I I remain firmly in the camp that that foodborne spread is is highly unlikely. Yeah, just a, a couple of things on on that. Um, I think one one of the reasons probably why we're not asking those questions is because you and at least here and I'd say in North America we've got a lot of community spread from. Um, people being around other people that are infected, right? Like that's the, so, so asking that question might not be useful and hasn't been useful. If we got down to like six cases a, a day, you know, right now I just looked at where we're at here, just in my County, um, we're, uh, about a thousand cases a day. Uh, <laughs> um, and so, so it's like, how would you even parse that out? If you started looking for, for the signal from, from food. The, the other thing that I want to highlight here, and this is this is a more of a academic esoteric conversation, but there are two passages I'm going to read you from this paper, one from the abstract and one from the discussion and conclusions from that from the abstract. And I'm, I'll, there'll, there'll be some editorializing here because I think it's important um, on how we read papers in general, quote, the survival and high recovery of SARS-CoV-2 on certain foods support the possibility that food contaminated with SARS-CoV-2 could potentially be a source of infection. 
right? There's a lot of like qualifiers there. And then in the conclusion, it, it says, although SARS-CoV-2 can remain infectious on a variety of different types of foods, further studies are needed to determine whether ingestion of virus contaminated foods would result in infection and how symptoms following ingestion may differ from respiratory transmission. And those are two similar statements, but I think the second one is more, I don't know, more important is what, what I would have put in the, in the abstract. Right. But maybe it doesn't, doesn't sell journal articles. Um, like the first one, like the first one does, right? Like maybe there's something here, maybe, maybe we need to look at it. And I agree with Don, this doesn't, doesn't surprise me at all. First of all, that you could recover, you know, any trace of, of a virus, whether you were looking for viral RNA or infectious virus particles. Um, and certainly over, over time, it doesn't surprise me that it's there, but it really doesn't help us answer the question of what, what is alluded to. And I get that that's not what this group does. I think the gap that we have is no one's really investigating this, the potential and transmission route of food as a source for foodborne illness to, to either refute or confirm that it, that it is um, a, a route. And so we have to rely on that epidemiology, which Larry, as you, as you mentioned, and it, it becomes really flawed because we're not even really asking the right questions to maybe find it, mainly because we know that there's a lot of community spread from um, person to person shared air transmission. So it's, it's like, we're still two years into this and we don't have a really, um, we don't have a really complete answer for it. And we probably won't for another decade. You know, I don't know. Yeah. And, 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 and I guess just listening to those comments, which again, I agree with, um, it's made me think why now, like why the, why the, the this question of can it be transmitted through food now i mean i, I think about influenza um has and i, I could be wrong because right, i've not looked at, at any of this but has has there been ever been any concern that influenza was foodborne or that it could be transmitted through food i i, I certainly have never come across any articles you know i haven't done a targeted search but i'm just if, if the answer to that is no um, and the same thing would exist for other respiratory viruses. Why, why, why are we so concerned about whether SARS-CoV-2 could be transmitted through food? Yeah, and so I, I will, um, and I, I, I was looking for my notes um, on, on this, and I don't have them in front of me, but let me, let me share a story that was told to me in confidence, and so I'm going to obfuscate a little bit here, and Ben, ben knows the details here, but, but basically, I've been told that they've done some work in China where, where the, the prevalence of the virus is relatively low and the, they don't have a fantastic vaccine. So when, when the virus does pop up, it tends to spread quickly. Um, they have a lot of boots on the ground epidemiology so they can do proper contact tracing. And so what I've been told is there've been a couple of instances where they've investigated clusters of cases and they've done the contact tracing back to patient zero. And patient zero ends up being somebody who has no known exposures, but they do work with food, typically with imported food and, you know, like a dock worker or somebody who handles that imported food. And so there's evidence and this, none of this is published and all of this is second or third hand, right? And again, I'm obfuscating the details. 
Um, but they, there, there does seem to be evidence that you can get origination of a cluster from somebody who handles food where the virus might be on the outside of the food. And, and this is in alignment with what CDC says about fomite transmission, right? Like we th that they think that it's about a one in 10,000 risk uh, that, you'll, that you'll get uh, transmission from fomites. So if you imagine a scenario where you have a lot of people handling food, some of which might be contaminated, um, you're going to occasionally get those one in 10,000 events and you're going to get infection and then you're going to get spread. And if you've got really, you know, if you've got a system where you don't have much virus and you've got really a lot of resources to trace it down, you can trace it back to, um, you can trace it back to, to, to food packaging. That's not the same as tracing it to food, um, but but that, that is at least, and again, it's only anecdote, right? And it's second or third hand, but, but I thought it was an interesting story and it's made me uh, kind of, because originally I was like, I don't even, I'm not even sure the risk is one in 10,000, right? Which is only what we see from risk assessments. But this, there does, again, if, if I, if I believe the source who believes their source, um, which they do and I do, then uh, there might be something there. But that still is not the same as getting the virus from eating food that contains the virus, right? Right. And, and I think that's the, to me, that's the crux of it. Um, you know, a while ago, um, when I was still in the U.S., I sat on the USDA NIFA panel. I think the panel had to do with um, emerging foodborne pathogens or something like that. And I, I just remember, you know, thinking to myself, well, there's a lot of academic researchers that are really twisting themselves into pretzels to to convince, you know, the reviewers that that here's a new emerging pathogen, right? And typically, what happened was. Uh, here's a new emerging foodborne pathogen. Typically what happens, well, we, we did this study, we found this pathogen in food. Um, like one, one particular one that comes up is um, the particular types of E. coli that cause urinary tract infections. And we found it in food or we found it in poultry, live poultry, and then in the, you know, in the poultry meat. And so we think this is an emerging foodborne infection. Yeah, and there are others, there are others, um, similar type of arguments. So, you know, I like to draw a distinction, even if it is in food, and even if, or on the food package or whatever the case may be, and somebody touches that food, and then they subsequently become infected. That's, to me, a lot different than what we would understand as a typical foodborne infection, which means that somebody had to ingest the food, had to make it through the stomach into the gastrointestinal tract and so forth. So. You know, I, yeah. I think there's a lot of foods that have a lot of things uh, that you can you can get um, that are not foodborne. You know, the, the pathogen is on the food or, or, or the, you know, the the uh, the um, let's say if we're talking about animals, livestock from which the food is derived and you you could touch that or come in contact with that and inoculate yourself. That doesn't necessarily mean it's foodborne, though. Right. Right. And, and right. I think exactly. That, yeah. And I think that's the like the thing that that bothered me the most about the way that the abstract is 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 written compared to what they have later in that paper, which is supports the possibility that food contaminated with SARS-CoV-2 could potentially be the source of infection by a variety of means, right? R by ingestion, by respiration, by um, you know, food is a fomite touching, which which is different from what they have in the conclusion, which is only about ingestion of the contaminated viruses. So it's it's like 
anyway, it, it it's not, um, you know, we, we could spend almost all of our podcast time looking at ways that we would have written papers differently, probably. Um, <laughs> but, but I think in, in this one, but, like, why, but why would we, <laughs> but why would we? Yeah. And, but in this, in this case, this is one where it's like, yeah, I, I think it, the thoughtfulness of how someone's going to use these quotes matters, right. Or how they're going to use this text really, really matters. Um, so yeah, it's, but, but it's, I mean, and I'm, I'm going to go back and, and agree with something you said earlier, Larry, I'm, I'm always about, um, wanting to, to challenge my view with, with additional data. You know, one, one of the things that Don and I do on, on risky or not, um, our other podcast to put a plug in for it here, um, is that we get to like, kind of convince each other of, uh, if we don't agree on it. Right. And coming to the table with, with data, like I might have a thought, but Don comes with a different take with different data. I, I like that more than looking for the data that confirms my, my original thought. Um, and so, so I, I think we always have to be open to this, right. That there might be something, there might be something here and we, and we need to continue to look at it to make sure we're not missing something. So, so it's good to have, this type of data exist out there uh, to continue that that um, that discussion. And I also think that it's good because, as we all know, we're in this age of misinformation, and um, you know, interpretation of data has never been more important. And that misinformation is unfortunately being spread not just by by people who we might conclude have not been trained to scientifically assess data, but also in some cases by people who have been trained to do right. That. So, you know, being able to like, like I look at this paper and I'm thinking this is, this would be a great paper to discuss in our, in my, you know, lab group meeting as a perfect, yeah. um, you know, as a, as a, as a cautionary tale um, with respect to how, um, you know, what, what is the paper done and what is it actually saying? Mm -hmm. Because I could see a media outlet taking this and running. Yeah, you yeah, know, totally. uh, and you know, and here we go again. SARS is foodborne, you know. So SARS could be two is foodborne. So, so, so that's why I, I just. And the other reason I brought up is, and I, and I mean this in all seriousness. I mean, I think, you know, this podcast and the both of you are are are, are very respected in this field. So, um, you know, I, I do think when when these these topics come up it's good to to at least quickly discuss them and 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 you know at least come to some kind of idea of what we think the paper's saying and so forth totally oh, and sure and and by talking about these things then people like our um the not the the non-revealed person that wanted to get on the phone and tell me that anecdote um like stuff comes to light right and that's that's great like that's how we that's how we generate hypotheses that's how we um, you know, we do better science is by talking about it. And, and, and it's great to have a podcast or some other informal means to kind of get your ideas out there and see and see what you say. So you'll know what you think, right? And then and then that leads to further conversations and hopefully eventually um, leads to some good science, um, uh, even if uh, you get some bad science on the way. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and as much and I, I, Larry, I appreciate your comments as much as we're um, you know, maybe somewhat respected. Only one of us has a Wikipedia page on this. <laughs> that is true. 
I do, <laughs> I do want to say, you know, you've got a long way to go to catch Dr. Dre, but you don't have as far to go. I put it in the chat a while ago to catch the food professor. And honestly, <laughs> you know, you're as much a food. Pro- we're all, we're all, any of us are, are, you know, we'll take out our professors and measure, measure against the food professor <laughs> anytime. Well, <laughs> I, well, I will thank you. And, 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 and that's, yes, like I say, this, you know, I was super excited to come on this podcast because it's always good to be among friends. I think both of you, um, I count you as, as friends as well as colleagues. Um, Absolutely. You know, Don, and, and this gets kind of shifts back into one of the things I want to talk about, you know, Black History Month and, and, and that sort of thing. But Don, certainly you've been a mentor to me. Um, I think you've always, you know, you've always made me aware of, initiatives that that you know are, are afoot with respect to to furthering um the presence um or recognition of of underrepresented populations in, in science and then you know as you say we've known each other for a long time and we've had many conversations you know about how to increase um you know the, the presence of of underrepresented populations um in 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 food science so so you know, um, um, certainly um, it's 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 good to be here. Um, but the Wikipedia page, I have to say, um, you know, in all honesty, has has really taken stolen the show for me today. Oh, for sure, me too. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so hey, I mean, I want to I want to make sure that that we get to spend some time talking about what you just mentioned about sort of underserved minority populations, black populations being in the world of food science and food safety. And I wanna, I'm gonna drop a link here um, into our chat so so everybody can see this. Um, I I saw this this article uh, from earlier this week, late late last week, I guess it was, uh, Larry just, uh, that quoted you uh, from CBC about, and I'll read the headline, black scientists won't stay in Canada without equitable research funding experts say. And I I think this is certainly part of the, the conversation I wanted to have um, with with you today was just getting your perspective on um, on how we like Don and I and others around us who are white professors, white academics. How can we help address the the challenges and problems that that we that we that exist? And this is from our professional organization from IAFP to our individual institutions to our entire like discipline, you know, I, I, I really, and you know, Don, I think I shared Larry and I've talked quite a bit about this over the last uh, couple of years. And I want to, I want, I really wanted to have this, this conversation here in our, in our forum um, as well. So let's, let's talk a little bit about this. So what, you you've existed in a couple of different systems, Larry. What what's your what's your view on this? Like why why do we have trouble in the area of diversity? As I look around our our field, it it's predominantly you know a white field. It's predominantly a white male field in many cases. And what do we what do we need to be doing? Yeah. So so much so much to unpack from that. I mean, the first thing I'll say is that. You know, um, there are people who um, are concerned about this and there are people who aren't. Um, you know, the mere fact that you asked this question um, 
you know, I would say I'm not concerned about you or Don. And I've already said, you know, you guys have always been supportive of, of, of me as a, as a minority and, and, and many others. Um, so so, so I'll, I'll just say that. Um, I guess the problem is, you know, to me, it's a historical one. And, and the other thing I'll say is it's, this isn't a food science problem or a food safety problem. It's a, it's a everything problem. Mm -hmm. I think we see it in every, all aspects of academia, all aspects of society. So it's a systemic issue. That's, that's been the problem. And by systemic, what I mean is, um, I think there have been, um, you know, there, there have been uh, systems put in place, policies put in place that whether the intent was to do this or not, it has limited um, uh, you know, involvement by by non-white males in 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 academia. Um, then and then what that has done is led to indirect reasons. So you know, one of my one of my um, one of the things I, I think I feel really strongly about is that you know, if you don't see somebody that looks like you doing something professionally. Um, it's often, and I'm talking about as a, as a kid, um, when, you know, in many cases, you know, uh, um, you know, we begin to formulate what we might want to do. I mean, we look at our parents and we, I think whether we realize it or not, we look at our friends and, and, and others, we think about, well, hey, do I want to be like that when I grow up? I mean, certainly with my kids, we've had this discussion. They want to be scientists because I'm a scientist. If you don't see somebody that looks like you doing that, I, I think that discussion is, is often not even, you know, something in, in, that's present in, in one's consciousness. And so we, we see a lot of underrepresented kids. They don't see people who look like them in the sciences. So I, I think they don't really think about it um, as, a, as a viable career, um, you know. And, and so this gets into the whole, you know, where do we see lots of minority sports? So our sports um, are athletes role models and we could debate whether they are or they aren't. But the fact is, you know, a lot of kids see them and say, hey, that's, I can do that or I want to do that because, you know, that's what they're doing or music or whatever. Um, the other thing I'll say is I think <clears throat> there's a lot of racial awareness now and these prob problems, you know, I think most um, uh you know, people in the academic realm will will admit that these are problems, and and working in the United States, I have to say, um, you know, so us in Canada, we like to often thumb our nose at the at the U.S. Um, when it comes to to racism, um, because we see things like George Floyd, and a, a common refrain in Canada is, well, thank goodness it's not as bad here, and I always chafe at that because I think it is as bad in Canada. Um, it's just not, it's just more subtle. And it could actually be, and that actually makes it worse. Because I will say this, when I was in the US, one thing that I liked is that, you know, there was definitely acknowledgement, this is a problem. Um, there's a lot of great data in the US, for example, about the, you know, percentages of, of underrepresented groups that are at, at, at campuses. And then there's actually things done about it. You know, so, so when I was at Colorado State, for example, there was a program called Bridge the Doctorate, a federal program, which gave universities, it was like you had to apply for it, like a grant, but it gave universities money um, to actually bring in um, underrepresented 
uh, people from underrepresented groups to PhD programs. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea being, we understand there's a there's a lack here, so we want to in- improve that. And I was able to 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 um, uh, fund a student, uh, Shannon Coleman. I'm happy to to say her name because she's now a professor at Iowa State. Okay, in Canada, we don't even know. <laughs> you know, we're just starting to collect data. So we don't even know the extent of the problem. We know there is a problem, but you know we're just starting to collect it, and we certainly don't have federal programs or provincial programs uh, aimed at that. So, so I think um, you know, I, I would say the U.S. is ahead in this area. Um, that being said, you know I think we have to get to an. It, this is all prescribed, and and the initiatives that are happening in Canada certainly there's initiatives afoot to hire more minority faculty. Um, um, we have in Canada, you know, I, I talked about black scientists and other scientists from other, you know, underrepresented groups leaving Canada if, if, if this isn't solved. Um, we have a, a program called the Canada Research Chair Program, which is a prestigious um, program, um, basically one of the highest awards one can be given as an academic in Canada research awards. And that was initially instituted to precisely stop the brain drain to the U.S. during the early 2000s. Um, you know, predictably, when they did an assessment about five years ago or seven years ago, they found that um, the the awardees were predominantly white and male. So they prescribed to universities that universities now have to, you know, fill essentially quotas um, of underrepresented groups. Um, so I understand why they're doing that, just as I understand why there's programs in the U.S., to, to address the same types of things. However, the problem with this is that it's prescribed. You know, it's legislated. So I don't know um, if, if you've been following, you know, in the NFL, the lawsuit filed by the black coach that was fired um, from Miami. Um, you know, the NFL's had an, uh, for years prescribed a prescribed approach to try to increase the amount of black coaches in the NFL where, you know, teams had to hire, I mean, uh, interview at least one black coach if they head coach, if they had an opening and so forth. But the fact of the matter is it hasn't changed anything. And I think that's the problem with the prescription is that if you, if you have to prescribe something, it's, you're basically forcing entities to do something. Um, and, and there's always ways around that. So to get back to your question, like what, how can we fix this? I think, the way to fix it is we have to find more natural ways to increase diversity in academia at all levels, um, the faculty, you know, and higher administration. I, I know, you know, um, and I, it'd be interesting to see what, what, what the data looks like in the U.S., but certainly in Canada, you know, in, gains have been made in terms of increasing fac- the diversity of the faculty. But when you start to get into higher administration, chairs, deans, uh, presidents, um, I think it's like 25% of, of uh, women make up 25% of all university presidents in Canada. We don't even know the data for, for, for racial um, minorities. Um, but in terms of total leadership roles, it's something like 8% where the, the, the population um, in, the, in, in the population of, of racial minorities in Canada is about 22%, and on the campus, about 21% on the university campus. So, so we really need to increase that, because I think if we do, then, then there won't be a need for prescription because it'll just happen organically. Mm-hmm. So those are, are some of my thoughts. 
Well, there, there, it's not, oh yeah, go, go ahead, ahead Don. Oh, okay. So yeah. So, I mean, at least it sounds like the campus at least matches the population. So you're making some progress there. Um, right. Like, so the, we are making some progress. Uh, absolutely. Um, and, and, and again, you know, let me say this, because when we have these discussions, always the, 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 the narrative always kind of comes across as kind of a negative narrative, like, oh, you know, we have all these problems when we're doing that. So, you know, I think we have to be careful there. Certainly, there's a lot of positive inroads that have been made. Um, yeah, it's, you know, the, the, um, the yeah, 21% of uh, faculty versus 22% of the general population on the university campus, at least on, uh, at the undergrad level, the 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 rate the, the makeup is forty percent. Forty percent of students at the undergrad level in Canadian universities are um, identify as, as as a minority. So oh. so the issue there is that again, um, the students on campus don't have the mentors. Mm. I I cannot tell you how like it hasn't happened so much at Guelph, and it might be. Um, McGill was very, very diverse. So certainly not at McGill. It hasn't happened at Guelph. It might be because of COVID. You know, I've been back for three years, but two of those years has been COVID. But when I was at, at Colorado State, um, I cannot tell you how many students I mentored that from programs that had no, like nothing to do with like physics and wow. um, engineering because, because they, they don't, they just, they, <laughs> these are, these are black students. They, nobody was there to, to kind of help them. And there's all kinds of, of like I can tell, I mean, there's, we could spend five podcast sessions on this, you know, where, where these students, they're typically first generation. So they don't know what to, to, to expect. You know, my, my parents were educated, but they, they were educated in England and in, 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 in colleges, not universities. So for all intents and purposes, I was a first-generation university student. And, you know, you arrive on campus, we all know that the coursework is a step up from high school, a steep step up. But there's also social norms you have to learn. Um, you know, that if you're, if you're in a family that's been five generations, you know, you just know those social norms, not because somebody told you, but it somehow it's like osmosis. So, you know, I always like to say first generation students, regardless of their race, are also, you know, a group that we, we really need to, 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 to uh, take care of. Um, but yeah, I, I mentored all these students, they're just coming to me, uh, you know, for help or for support, because, because they don't see that in their field. And so, this is another reason why we need to, um, it's not just about recruiting the students, it's about retaining them. Yeah. And, 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 and I think, we, you know, we are starting to do a better job of, of recruitment, but we have to also now follow up with programs to help retain them. The other thing I'll say is, and this comes back to something I said much earlier in this, in this podcast. So Don, you said, you know, that I, you mentioned that I'd moved around a lot, you know, I, um, in terms of faculty positions, first at Wyoming, then Colorado State, then McGill, and now Guelph. And, you know, to be quite frank, um, at least in, in three of those moves, yeah. um, the reason was because I felt like for, for the work that I had been doing for the, for the research and the grant funding that I brought in and the publications and teaching, I was not being afforded the same opportunities that my white colleagues were. Yep, yep. 
And so the only way to to do that, the only way to get a step up was to make these moves. And each time, sure, move to a, a, a higher position. Right. Sure. Um, right. Sure. Um, so so so, and these are things that you know. These are, but but, can I prove that to you? Oh. You know, no, yeah. I can't. I can't prove it. And that's that's the insidious nature. Like right. like I'll share right. with you. You know, I won't say the institution, but you know, um, I was. Um, I'd been doing a lot of work as a U.S. institution. I was doing a lot of work um, in in this area, you know, and I kind of I didn't st- st- I didn't I didn't set out to do this. It just happened, you know. The students needed help. I certainly wanted to help them. Became more and more involved. Um, so um, there was a point where I was um, really invited to consider uh, applying for an associate dean position in the grad school. And, uh, and I thought about that. Um, I had a mentor at the time who was, was actually, um, she still is a mentor, and she was the dean of the grad school at the time. And, and so she you know, talked to me about that because we've been working closely together on, on these initiatives. So I thought about it and decided, yes, I would like to do that. Well, um, you know, in subsequent discussions with my departmental chair at the time, he went to all kinds of means to dissuade me from doing that. You know, with 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 arguments that that on the surface seem appropriate, like things like, well, um, you know, I, I wasn't tenured at the time. I mean, I, sorry, I was tenured. I wasn't promoted to full at the time, although I, I probably could have gone up um, soon. But you know, comments like, well, this is going to affect your, this could affect your your promotion. Um, you know, what are your colleagues going to think, and so forth. Um, and I, I remember thinking to myself. These are the types of, of arguments that are always used or typically used for, for minorities. And then you go away thinking, wow, my, you know, my department chair really cares about me. Yeah, thank you. You know, thank you for bringing this up. I won't, I won't pursue the opportunity. And so we end up with, huh. we end up with you know, where we are, which is that yeah. you don't see a lot of, of, of minorities in, 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 in leadership positions. Um, I, I subsequently really realized no, it wasn't about that. It was it was about for whatever reason. I don't know what the reason was, but it was about you know trying to convince me not to not to do it, not for myself, uh, but because of, of of some reason that that he had had. So you know these are the types of things that that happen, and and it, it really wasn't until I um, you know the, the U.S. is 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 I, I consider myself a U.S. researcher. Um, because that's where I, for, I spent my formative years as an academic. Um, and I, I'm really fond of the time there because I feel like I learned so much um, that has helped me in coming back to Canada. But one of the, one of the, one of the consequences of being in the U.S. is it's so, everything is so fast. I mean, it's, it's so fast. It's what have you done for me lately? It's so competitive. So you, you spend a lot of time really working. Um, and so I didn't have time to really reflect on all of this until I got back to Canada, where things tend to be slower. Um, and I, I look back and I, I suddenly realize, yeah, you know, um, these are the ways that, that, that one can be held back. So, so, you know, so I think it's important that, um, and, and the reason I also bring up this about my multiple moves is because I've, I've noticed um, that that people have made comments about that in, from a negative point of view. Um, like, oh, you've moved again. Um, you know, and, and they don't know the narrative. 
Well, I, I made the, the negative comments just a short time ago on the podcast. Well, I, I don't think just, but, but here's the thing, Larry, like I, why, why would I ever have to move? I'm a white male and now I'm an old white male. So I'm sure as hell not going to have to move because everything is set up for me. Right. Uh, I mean, so it, it, I really, I know, I mean, I really appreciate your making this point, right. Because it's not, it's, it's not that I'm racist. It's just that I have my own perspective, which, you know, comes from a perspective of entitlement, right? Like that's the one thing too, that I, you know, I mean, I don't have a perspective on racism, but what I've tried to, I mean, I have, a, I have an opinion on it, right? But, but I don't know what it's like to be discriminated against. Um, but what I have, especially more recently come to realize is, oh, you know what? There's, there's a lot of opportunities that are open to me because I'm a white male. And that is something where, that I'm trying to become a lot more, a lot more conscious, of, conscious of. So, but, but, uh, but I, you know, I, I, I do appreciate you making that point, Larry. Yeah. And, and, and your, your thoughts are well taken. I mean, I certainly, when you made the comment earlier, I didn't take that as a, I didn't see it as a, as a negative comment. I mean, when I'm talking about negative comments, I mean, people have come up to me and, you know, it's almost like, like, and I'll be honest, like IFP, like there's been times where I've honestly, like, if I'm talking to somebody, I've, I've turned my badge around Mm. because Mm. I just don't want to have to explain, um, why, you know, why I may have made that move, um, you know, and so, and so, I mean, I mean, you know, um, yeah, so, so that's, that's it. But again, you know, so Don, you said perception, your perception. And, and this is the thing. I think a lot of white white people have, you know, there's been a lot of talk about guilt and, and so forth. I don't think anybody should feel guilty. I mean, how can you not, how can you have a perception other than what you've, what your perception is? I mean, the same thing would occur for me. We all have our own perceptions. You know, the example I like to state is, you know, we're talking about racism, but let's talk about gender equality. You know, right, we, right. we are men. So how can we possibly know what it's like to be a woman in, in, well, and, in, in both of these things? And, and we're straight men, right? So how can we possibly absolutely. know what the it's same, like to be, to, ex- to be queer, right? Absolutely. I mean, yeah. Absolutely. So, so, but the point is that, so I think we, we concede and there's no guilt in it. We don't know. But that doesn't mean that we, we should not be aware, like it should not be in our consciousness and that it doesn't mean that we shouldn't strive to educate ourselves to try to get to a point where even though we'll never completely understand because we're not in that situation, we, we can still get to a point where we have a fairly good understanding and we're at least sensitive as much as possible to the, to the plight of, of underrepresented groups. And, and that we try then therefore to, to try to, um, to make it easier for them to succeed. Right. Well, and, and I think that that, recognition of of just a perspective i mean i i hope it i hope it helps and i i as larry and i've talked about this over the last couple of years one thing that was really um really sticks in my mind i had a uh you know someone who a colleague of mine who um at, at sort of at the at the height of the international and national discussion around racism around uh George Floyd last, last year kind of said, look, I go to, and, and Larry, Larry sort of recounted a really similar situation. This individual told me like, I go to IAFP and, and no one, no one looks like me. Like there, there are people that look like me, but they're not in these 
aspirational positions. They're not sitting on the board. They're not leading a PDG. I don't see them at institutions. I don't see them in industry. So, so it's really like, it doesn't feel like my community, which the perspective that, that, you know, Don and I have not, you know, again, I think I'll just reiterate what you just said, Don, not putting words in your mouth, but, but I, I, I had never, never once felt that in as a, as a white straight male, right? Like, like that, that, that that's never, never once come up in, in my, in my conversations. So it's really like, it's really hard to, to not recognize that and, and think about it in, in a, in a way and, and try to move, sort of try to move, move past it. I think, yeah. But I think we're getting there, right? And with respect to IFP, we're getting there. I still remember it was a huge deal um, when Anne Drawn was elected to the board because it was the first women, first woman IAFP president. And then I think we've had situations where the board has been a majority women, right? And so, and we've and we've we've got we've had a, a Latino board member and we've had a gay board member, right? So we're getting there in terms of diversity, so people in the membership can see themselves reflected in leadership. But we've also we've also got a long way to go. But I think I think it does like it, it having that person in leadership definitely helps. And and one thing too. And I want to just say before we leave, one of the things that's been very encouraging to me about, about my institution is we now have an African-American president and that, mm. and, and DEI initiatives are, are now more, much more so front and center. Now there's still a lot of work to, to go. Like for example, that we, there are, there are opportunities for recruiting diverse students, but the bureaucracy and the, the, the hoops that we have, it's like, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be as it shouldn't be harder for me to find qualified diverse candidates to recruit to graduate school than it is to to recruit high quality academic recruits but right now the system is set up to 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 allow me to identify highly qualified students irrespective of diversity but i can't flip it the other way around and say okay now show me all the diverse applicants so that i can find the high quality ones it's just right. not the 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 systems are not in place to do that and that and that's frustrating right like yeah. I, but again i'm i we'll get there but it's frustrating what but, so, go ahead larry well i was just gonna say i mean um you know i as as a as a minority and I look back on my career, um, and, and you know, you, you know, uh, Ben, you asked about, you know, because I talked about the funding discrepancies, and again, I think the U.S. is a little bit ahead here. Um, you know, the panels that I sat on, USDA panels and, and NIH panels, were, were, well, certainly the USDA panels were 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 diverse. NIH, not so much. Um, you know, so that takes a lot of, I think, inherent bias out of decisions because you have a diverse panel whereas in Canada they, the panels tend not to be diverse and and so you you know you, you see that you know typically um, at least for certain funding agencies um, you know the the funding goes disproportionately to to male white white um, academics but you know um, back to the IFP thing for a second you know I've had this discussion so I agree I think I think I think um, gains are being made. I think gains are being made, and that's certainly a positive thing. You know, I've had this discussion with people, and they say, "Well, Larry, if that's how you feel, um, you know, you need to. You've got to, you know, if you want to see 
you know, more diversity in leadership, you need to consider, you know, uh, um, nominating or being nominated for those positions. And the, and, and the thing about it is that, that and that, that's kind of the unfortunate other side of it is that one of the things that I spend so much time on is service. And it's because as of right now, there, there are so few minority um, faculty that in order to, you know, we spend so much time on service because if here's a committee, we need diversity. Here we go. Larry, yeah. can you serve on this? <laughs> yeah. Committee, right. Yeah. So, so, and, and, yeah. and, 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 and the problem is um, it's okay for me now I'm, I'm tenured, I'm full professor, but when you're assistant professor, you know that, uh, you know, te- you're going to be judged for tenure on research and on, yeah. on, on, yeah. on teaching. And really it's research. So, yeah. Um, so, you know, with this service is taken away, but on the other hand, how do you not do it? Because if you don't, the committees are not going to be diverse. So getting back to IFP, you know, it's it's the same thing. It's like, okay, but you know, (laughs) I've got me personally, I've got to pick my battles or maybe, or maybe it's that I don't even want to be part of that. Right. Like it's one thing to say, we need to have more diverse leadership. That doesn't necessarily mean that I want to be the person doing that. Right. Right. So, so I think, I think these are some of the considerations, but the one thing I want to really talk about was allyship, white allyship. You know, as I look through my career and Don, I've already mentioned you, you know, you, I count you as one of my mentors. Um, You know, I've certainly asked you for advice, you know, over the years. Um, I wouldn't be where I, where I am if it wasn't for white allies. Right. And so I've been fortunate to have, and to have, in the past and continue to have great mentors um, who, who, who I trust, who are, who are white women and men and have guided me. Um, and, and I think, so that's another thing that one can do, hmm. you know, is, is, is really think about their allyship. Um, and if one feels comfortable to, to mentor others, you might not have all the answers. You might not know what it's like to be a black student um, in a predominantly white, you know, environment, but you, you certainly know what it's like to be, have been a student going through grad school and undergrad and the challenges of that, which, you know, many challenges are, are, are the same, regardless of, of, of race or gender or sexual orientation. So I think being an ally, uh, you know, as a white person, understanding that, that you can still have a positive impact on, on, on underrepresented populations by being an ally. Oh, yeah. And I, I just want to give a, a giant shout out to my former PhD student, who's now an extension associate at Cornell and Begdahl and from uh, Haiti and, and she's black and she's just been an absolute delight to mentor. But I also realized that she needed other mentors, like she, in particular, she needed a woman mentor. Right. And so she was very nervous about reaching out to Catherine Bohr. <laughs> I said, no, no, Catherine's really nice. You should reach out to her. And and they had a really nice, uh, they had a really nice chat. And and again, now I've helped to build that mentoring relationship. And so I think building that that diverse network. And then again, she she probably needs a, a black mentor too, right? Like because because like we can all give her advice, but we don't know what it's like to be a black woman from Haiti, for example, right? And so so finding finding that diverse team that can help her with what she needs. Um, and and again, she's working right now. She's working for Randy Warbo, and Randy is a fantastic mentor for her. Um, and giving her like really um, really just solid advice about how to develop as a scientist. 
those. But but again, it's uh, you know it, it it's it does take like I think I think it takes. I I know for my own work, like I wanted I wanted a diverse, not necessarily ethnically diverse, but I wanted a diverse team of people to mentor me. I wanted extension people. I wanted people who worked for the news media. I wanted food microbiology people. Right. I wanted all of that. Um, uh, and I got that by just by picking people that whose opinions I trusted, who I knew would tell me the truth. Right. And that's, yeah. So anyway, I'm rambling. Then, well, and, and I, I, I thought a lot about our like the conversations that I've had with Larry over the last couple of years on, on this, where that perspective of not placing all the burden on, you know, one or, a, mm. you know, a small group of individuals, right? Like this, if, 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 if the change is going to happen, it's going to have to happen from from us recognizing that that the system and we have to change, not not just like Larry's got to fix it all, right? Like, and it's not you know, and and so thing you know when when you mentioned Ally, one of the things that's been really helpful for me um, over the last little while, I, I you know I, I put a link into this into the chat. Mm-hmm. Um, we, there's a a book um, called by uh, Annalise Singh who's a professor at Tulane called the racial healing handbook. And this, this book's been sort of a starting point for, for my like approach in this. Um, we we're actually bringing, um, Annalise to, to NC state to put on a couple of days worth of, um, you know, workshops and work with our department, with our college, uh, on this. Cool. Yeah. And, but, but I really never thought about in, like until I started working through this, this book, the importance of not just like recognition, but thinking how can you actively be an ally? And it, and sometimes it's like, like you said, Larry, it's just being, I don't know, like, like it, it's, it's active, right? It's not, it's not passive sort of saying passive, this is something yeah. that we, that we should be fixing or we need to think about, or I need to think about it. It's like, what are the things that I can do on a search committee? What are the things that I can do in you know departmental leadership what are the things that i can do just run in my my lab um uh, uh, that that are actively um focused on being an ally for for individuals in in lots of different diverse communities and so anyway this i just wanted to to drop this in because i think it's been by by no means do i think i have this figured out but it's given me a much better perspective not just on like recognition and awareness but what are but activities like actively engaging on well, but this, yeah, well, and and so actively engaging, like number one, finding a book, number two, reaching out to the author of the book and asking yeah. him to come, like that. Talk about the definition of active. I mean, I, it's that's amazing, Ben. Well, and and I I don't want to say like it's it's certainly not just me. It's it's this whole group of of folks that I have within our department that that have pointed us as a faculty in this direction and and have done the work to to reach out. Um, and and I'm. I'm along, I'm along for the ride, but, but certainly Mm. embracing the, um, the work that's out there. And, and I, and, you know, I, I'll, I'll one, you know, one thing that really helped me and I'll, I, you know, I'll, I'll just continue to give a shout out to Larry on this. Like I had a conversation with Larry and, and another, um, black food safety, uh, professional, Mark Carter, a year ago, year and a half ago, just being like, I don't know where to start. So can we just talk? <laughs> and it was like, that was really, it, it was a really eye-opening experience from a perspective standpoint. And, and it, and it's, I don't know, it's slow, right? Like, like the, just, the 
changing anything systemic, it's systemic for a reason, right? And the, and and Larry, your your comments today just about your experience in in your previous institution about being dissuaded from participating in leadership demonstrates how how systemic stuff continues to be systemic, right? Like like it's it's there. It's it, it it's easier to 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 continue on the path for lots of different reasons. And and it benefits those who are in the system for lots of different reasons. And and so just I don't know, continuing encouraging people to continue to reach out and have these conversations and think about what it means to move forward and and just taking small steps. It, they're 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 not those small steps aren't aren't they're they're small and and they're slow, but they're not unmeaningful, and and just continuing to per, to do it right. Like that's the that's the piece that I think is that that I've learned is is important. And you and you're sticking your neck out there, right? Like it's it's small things, like having your your pronouns out there, or just thinking about how you're gonna build. A, a team think and you know Larry I'm going to I'm going to share something else that you told me that I think has really helped me think about this you know and Don you, you talked about sort of recruiting for teams and thinking about a pool of candidates it it's it's thinking about that your diverse pool of candidates may not be the same they may not go to the same posting sites where you're looking for mm-hmm for others. So you got to reach out into the, into the community in a much more purposeful way. And again, I don't, I don't feel like I've had that. I got that figured out. I've just learned from, from Larry in those discussions. I wasn't even thinking about it before. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, you know, so, yep. And not only the same sites, but, um, there's, there's oftentimes, um, a lack of, and, and this does, you know, so the one area that I think is a bit different is in the biomedical sciences and the medical fields. Um, you see a lot of, well, certainly compared to food science, a lot more minorities. Um, I think that's because, like, like for me, you know, so my family, I don't know if, if you both know this, but my family, my parents were from Guyana in South America, mm-hmm. which is typically, it's not considered part of South America. It's actually considered part of the Caribbean. And um, families, you know, Black Caribbean families, basically, um, there's there's like three, three, you know, three um, appropriate careers. <laughs> okay, doctor, and lawyer, doctor, lawyer, and a scientist, professor. No, no, no. no. Uh, so doctor, lawyer, or or some oh, government in, service, or doctor, lawyer, or something in the judicial service. Oh, okay. and um, and um, at least for me, and or dentistry. I don't know why, mm-hmm, sure. so, but that was kind of the three. Um, now this is really so. So a lot of students get pushed into those, like you know, black students, um, certainly from the Caribbean. But I've, I saw this in, in my time in the U.S. African American students or in, the, in that area so you find a lot of students in the biomedical and medical fields but not so much in in the science fields i mean interestingly enough and, and this shows you how inbred in this is my my dad who actually worked as a research scientist at mcmaster university in hamilton um i'll never forget so my parents said yeah med school med school med school and i was i bought into that i was going to go to med school and then i 
learned about this wonderful field called microbiology and then food microbiology and decided that I actually want to be a professor because my professor, Maslow Griffiths, I looked at him. And again, this is the importance of having people you look up to. I liked, he seemed like he had this you know, exciting career and was doing great research. And I decided I want to be like that. But the day I remember the day I told my dad that I was going to do a PhD and not go to med school. And, and remember, this is a person who works at a university. His response was, what are you going to do with that? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, later on, he, 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 you know, he, as a appropriate for a parent, he, he became proud and, you know, he's telling everybody his son was doing a PhD, but early on, it was like, you know, I was like, well, gee, dad, like, of all the people I thought you would understand. Um, so, you know, um, I think, it's just really, really important. Um, and this is why, again, I come back to this. But the point I really want to make was that, to your point, Ben, about, you know, students may look in different areas, like uh, look different, they, different sites for opportunities. They also have different levels of confidence, All right? So it, it's, it's, you may have to work really hard to um, recruit um, or much harder to recruit uh, a student from an underrepresented group than you would a majority white student. Mm. Um, because the confidence level, like them reaching out to you, for example, um, may not be there. Uh, and, and so these are all some of the things that, that, that really exist and it really, it really takes a lot of effort. I told you about the Bridge to the Doctorate uh, program when I was at Colorado State. And, one of the, the mistakes that was made there was that we didn't, you know, well, we vetted like professors, they had to agree to a certain number of things um, in order to become a supervisor. Um, but one thing we didn't, we, there's things we didn't think about. So for example, there's an issue with one student um, who um, almost got kicked out of, of, of a lab or a program. Um, and it, it was, you know, this issue that we have to understand that a lot of these students are coming from backgrounds where they may not, it's not just that they're not present, but they may not have actually had the right training, you know, background training. Right, right. So, so, so for example, one of the issues happened was the issue that happened was a student and came into this lab and um, this, this professor, um, they always, they always, um, any student that comes into the lab, they have to take two courses in the first semester and if they, they need to pass them, um, with an A, and if they don't, goodbye. Okay, and so, and the, I can't remember the case courses were, but they're they're not easy courses. So, this student came in and did not do well, and so the professor's like, "Well, look, you know, goodbye." And so, you know, and 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 it's interesting because the student felt the professor felt that they were actually being completely unbiased because they said, "I treat all my students the same way," right? And if you think about it, it kind of makes sense. Like, I look, all my students come in and they all have to right, perform right. this way. And if they, do, if they don't, regardless of their color or, or orientation or gender, then, then they can't continue. But, the, but the, the, the issue is that that type of thinking forgets that the students that are coming in are not equal in terms of, necessarily equal in terms of what their education is. And, and historically, because of, of, of the systemic problems. You know, my wife was a teacher in North Carolina, Ben um, Raleigh, 
um, uh, uh, rally or carry, one of those, I can't remember. Um, and she tells me, you know, the schools, in their schools there, you know, um, you know, the teachers tend to be paid less. Um, there's, there's, there's less support, um, you know, and so what happens to those students who go to those schools, they tend to not have the same education. Right. Right. And then that begins a, a, a knock on effect. Right. To they get into they probably don't learn good habits on how to learn. So then they go to high school where that's probably perpetuated. And then um, now we get to university. If they can make it to university, it's probably a lower university um, where that may be perpetuated. And then here we go. So understanding that and, and, and saying and understanding that it's OK to have different expectations, given where the different level of the students. And that doesn't mean that you're being unequal. Yeah, and I, I think that's a really like good perspective, right? Like, like this is this is sort of one 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 aspect of, uh, uh, or, or I guess one response, right? Is the well, I'm I'm just going to treat everybody the same way, and that that almost because of the the systemic aspect of of, of racism and just. Um, um, you know, I guess like not having a focus on lots of populations that, that is, it's detrimental to do that. Right. Like that it's, it's kind of like, and I'd never really thought about that until you and I had talked about it. Um, and, and sort of understanding more about that, that that's, you know, it's like the, the joke of, I don't, I don't see color. That's kind of the whole point, right? Like it, it it's, it's that we, we absolutely need to see color and recognize <laughs> yeah. and recognize yeah. that there's yeah. not been the same opportunities. So how do we actively try to address that? Yeah. And you know, one, one specific example that still gets me angry when I think about it is I, I was, I, I've been trying to get work on, as I said before, work on recruiting diverse applicants. And there was an applicant to our program last year that I thought was eminently qualified um, at, because it, he was probably gay, right? Like he had done work with diversity programs at his other university and people had met him and said, yeah, he's, he's probably gay, but he didn't come right out and say it. And so I put this student forward and the, they turned him down saying like, well, he didn't th see that he was diverse. And it's like, well, okay, so do I have to ask him if he's gay? What if he's uncomfortable having that conversation with me? Like, why can't we, we have to make this easier, right? Not harder. Uh, and so I, anyway, I'm still frustrated by that. And I don't know what the solution is, except I'm not going to submit any diverse candidates this year, but I am, I am resolved. And I'm telling, I'm making this public announcement to you two. Um, I'm going to reach out to the woman that's in charge of diversity for the university. I'm going to say, Hey, look, um, I need to get better at um, nominating diverse candidates for these fellowships. I want you to help me, but also I want to tell you what's broken with the system so that we can make it, so we can make it easier and not harder to do these things, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And again, like I say, you know, it's, it's, you know, I wanted to have this discussion with both of you because this is a safe space. You know, I, I've talked with you before. I know how you feel, but in a way, you're not the people to have this conversation with because you already get it. You know, um, it's the people who don't get it. Um, you know, I think there's some who don't want to get it. Um, I don't know that we'll ever reach them. I think there's a far greater number of people who would get it or in, or are interested, but just don't, are just not aware. 
Um, and I think those are the people that we, we really have to reach. Yeah. 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 I agree. And, and I think that one, one thing that, that I've, you know, I've, I've learned so much over, over this, but one of the, the, the other things that I've taken away is this, this aspect of maybe, maybe I, you know, maybe the fact that I'm recognizing this puts me into a, a different bucket, but, but I've got more, I've got to be able to spread this leadership. So, so it nudges people along more where it was okay to be kind of silent about it in the past. Cause you didn't really want to stick your neck out. And, and I mean, it's all, you know, age and stage of, of career and, and things like that. Now I, I feel much more comfortable where it's like, no, I really need to be actively engaging in this conversation. Cause maybe just talking about it more will, will make it okay for others to, to also view the, the, you know, the systemic aspect of what we're, what we're all experiencing in, in a way that they weren't put in, in the past. So, so I, yeah. I, yeah. I think it's, I think we still need to be like, I still, we still need to talk about it. Yeah. Well, and it's now that you're in a position as a department head to really perhaps make a difference for sure. And the other thing too, and we haven't talked about neurodiversity, right. But like, like one thing the pandemic has made absolutely clear to me and because of students in our program is like concern over mental health. Right. And I, I would put that in the same bucket as like, this is a problem that we don't talk about, or we certainly don't talk about enough that we need to do more to talk about. And so I'm trying to do more with that. Like we had somebody from our psychological services come and present a seminar to our graduate students mm. like to like say hey look it's okay like it's okay that you're struggling it's okay that you're depressed or that you're anxious or that you are having trouble sleeping or whatever it happens to be and there's resources here to help you with that and but what we really need to do is we need to talk about it right and so and, and doing something similar for for DEI again is on my agenda as graduate program director because that's a that's the that's the 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 you know, the, the, the area that I have responsibility for now where I need to try to make a difference. So it's interesting you say that, Don, about mental health, because my perspective during the COVID is that at least among, so I, I would agree among students, it hasn't been talked about, among faculty and so forth, like here at Guelph, it's been talked about a fair amount in terms of how are you doing and there's endless surveys. My criticism is that nothing's been done about it. Yeah. Like, you know, the whole thing is, yeah, so the consensus, yes, everybody's struggling. Yeah, we're overworked. The pandemic has really created, a, 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 you know, a really impossible, an impossible possibility of deadlines, you know, and we can't get it done. And there's more and more work and, 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 and the university knows this. I've yet to see anything substantive with respect to what they're doing about it. Mm-hmm. Well, right. And- yeah, and you made a comment earlier, Larry, just about suspending, um, uh, you know, project end dates from funders, right? Like, like how that 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 even that external pressure um, has has got to be contributing to the to the anxiety and mental health. So it's it's like, okay, what are we doing inside the university? And what are we doing with those funding agencies outside of the university? Um, it, it, recognizing recognizing there's a problem is great. But what's the action, right? Like, how are we how are we addressing this? Yeah, because and here's a perfect example of that. Um, you know, so let's say there was an end date of 2022 for a grant that four year grant from 2018, but for a year, for a year the university was shut down. So you have a PhD student 
Um, but for a year, they couldn't do their work. But the grant's ending in 2022, and there's no extension. How, what happens to that student? Right. You know, like the university, you know, here we uh, they gave some money for to cover stipends and stuff, but not, you, the, the, as we all know, <laughs> research is way more than stipend. You got to have money to do their actual research. You have to have money to, so they can go to the conferences. You have to have all this stuff, right? So in terms of, you know, mental health, you know, that could be, certainly for my mental health, you know, that kept me up at night because it's like, I feel responsible, which I think we all do, right? We feel responsible for our staff and students, right? And so you can't, you know, how are you going to, how are you going to um, uh, make sure that you have that support for, for students? Um, and I also think students, you know, the angst there, you know, because of the uncertainty. So, so that's an example, again, of how, you know, mental health can be, can be affected um, in this pandemic. But as we all know, it's not just the pandemic that has led to this. There's, you know, other societal reasons and, and some of the things that we've discussed here today. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, absolutely. And, and it's, you know, the pausing for a year has ripple effects for you know for a long time right like it it's not just oh we can extend everything by by a year and you'll you'll get caught up it's that changes the recruitment it changes you we've got to certainly address the mental health concerns we've got to you know the the funding aspect is not just it's not it's more than just adding the same amount of time on onto it yeah. I, hey, I want to, I just want to be respectful of time. We've been talking here for almost two and a half hours, which means, which means it's an awesome podcast, but I don't want to, um, you know, I don't, I don't want to uh, split this into a very special four-part episode. Uh, and, 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 I, and I've got, yeah. I've got stuff coming up later today, Ben, that I need to do for you. And, and there's yes. a certain dog that needs a walk and I've got to <laughs> yeah. feed myself lunch. Talk about self-care. I need to go uh, give myself some lunch. So I appreciate that, that we should probably wrap this up. Yeah. And, and Larry, I just want to, I want to thank you for coming on and being so candid and, and always um, being, being open and, and sharing your experiences has been just a wonderful conversation today that, uh, you know, so much of what we do on Food Safety Talk is, is you know, nominally about food safety, but it's about bigger things. And this has been one of my one of my favorite episodes. And of course, you know, Don did a good job guessing who you were, um, but uh, <laughs> he's really good at time. that. Yeah, I mean, I was well. like, oh, man, he's like, as soon as he asked the American University, uh-huh. or, I was like, oh, it's, it's over. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, it was... Uh, and his when he said uh when he sort he sort of stumbled to respond about uh united states or not i'm like oh okay all right i'm narrowing it down so i was trying to like throw you off there but it worked in opposite direction so well better better luck next time and 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 i want to make a shout out for everybody who listens to this this is a perfect reason why you need to come on this podcast because of education because (laughs) because that one of uh, this discussion has been amazing and so thank you for that absolutely amazing it will give me a lot of things to think about going forward but i just want to reiterate that one of the highlights of this uh talk today is the fact that i learned on this podcast that i have my own wikipedia (laughs) (laughs) me too me too and i i mean the the under uh the subtext of that is um, and that Don and I don't, right? Like that's, right. that's <laughs> the most important thing. That's the most yeah, important, that's the most yeah. important thing. Yeah. Let's be well, clear. Yeah. 
Oh, good job. Well, anyway, thanks, thanks to you both, and uh, we'll we'll talk soon. Um, all right, uh, we'll wrap it up. Bye. Thanks, Bye. thanks, guys. Bye. Awesome. What a great conversation. Yes. Good stuff. Cool. All right, cool. So let's, let's get the next one scheduled real yeah. quick here. Um, okay. And so you we, I already know about your, uh, your, your codex issues, right? So we've got, yeah. do we want to, um, do we want to look at the week after then? Oh, it's up to you. I'm good. Like, so oh, wait, so, so yeah. So today, today is the 16th. Yeah. So in Three weeks is Codex. Oh wait, what the fuck? No, um, two weeks. Oh, 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 stop cursing, Don. Um, you know what, Mike? What the hell's wrong with my? Co- Why is Codex? That's not. That can't be right. Hold on, something is not right. Oh wait, what the hell? Yeah, it's. Why do I have a Codex thing on the March 9th? That doesn't make any sense. Oh no, yeah, you can't have that. That doesn't make any sense at all. Um, that must be an error. Because it's weird because I've got, yeah, I don't know. For some reason, the my calendar thinks I have a codex thing. Oh, speaking of calendars, um, turns out I had something at 11 yesterday. That's why we ended at 1030. Oh, and, and you I just did, didn't I go didn't, to it. I, I oh, had no, to know. I, I had, I had, it was a webinar for the New Jersey affiliate that <gasps> I had to run. Oh my gosh. Uh, but thank God I, I found out right at 11 and I wanged it wanged it wanged in there and and did, did a perfect okay job nailed it nailed oh, it noel not quite but um all right so for some reason i'm showing a codex committee meeting on march 9th but i could okay. do i could do um the the wait what's the so 16 yeah i could do i could do the eighth or the i could do the eighth could you do well but but you're you're also in codex the whole week of the 28th is what you're saying right that's what yeah, unfortunately, yeah. but but I could blow I could blow another one off. Well, but I'm does gonna... it end since it's in the starts early? Does it go late? Ends, like... ends at ends at eleven. Oh well, could you do like the afternoon of of the second? I have no. I'm speaking okay. at uh, affiliate meeting. Okay. Uh, council. Uh, I don't know what that is. Um. Yeah, an afternoon to the second is not good. Okay. Um, afternoon can... to the third is great. 
Yeah. Not for you. So well, I got something that's we we could start. We could do it at three. Three's fine. Okay, let's try that. I've got a meeting that goes till three. And then okay, let's do that. And if it runs over, I mean I could go, I could go past five. Okay. So. And I'll reach out to the not so secret guest of okay. uh, Bill on that. Oh, and right. Him, yeah. I know. Yeah. That's, yeah. Good. Okay. Um, Cause that's better, maybe better. For, well, although his who knows? The guy gets up, who knows when he, he's working in South Africa, he's all over the place. Um, okay. Cool. Done. I will reach out to him. Um, yeah. And that's that, that works out perfect. That keeps us on our two week schedule. Um, Awesome. And then, yeah, you got to go walk the dog. I got to go grab yep. food and then get back by one thirty. So good. I, think I will I think put the show notes and the two titles I captured. What were your two titles? Uh, cruising for Canadians and varying all the variables. <laughs> cruising for Canadians is good. I got it's yeah. I, I, I got phase 36, um, and, <laughs> which also might work with the, with the show art. So yeah. Um, Cool. All right. Cool. This is awesome. Uh, all right. I'll, uh, I'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye. Okay. Bye.